you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 105. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by Chris Bandicoot. Raygun, Chris, how are you today? How's life? Pretty, pretty okay. Nothing to complain about, I don't think. Not yet, Mm. anyway. How's the new apartment? Pretty good. I'm enjoying it. The internet is so... So much faster. Do you remember when I told you, like, when I, whenever I upload uh, a file to the Google Drive for this podcast, it takes, like, 30 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. I, I got all two hours of the Last of Us spoiler cast in, like, I think 40 seconds, 30 seconds. That's awesome. So it's a massive, massive increase. It's good to know. I want you to now begin taking high-resolution pictures of yourself and sending them to me. But I'm not talking about, like, sexual pictures. I just want you to take high-resolution pictures of just your you doing random things around your apartment yeah like day in the life kind of thing (laughs) yeah like portraits or candids right exactly and then send those to me via the google drive as well well i'm glad the apartment is treating you well is it more quiet is it roachless is i think what we all want to know it is it is roachless uh it's relatively quiet uh it's as quiet as a building in this location can be not too loud not too annoying i found a single tiny ant but uh Mm. 
But honestly, I'm fine with it. Ants never really bothered me. Especially, like, not in, like, small volumes, like, one every couple minutes. Or one every couple, like, hours or days. <laughs> one every one ant every couple minutes just kind of ro- roams <laughs> on by. Yeah, with a little picket picket fence. Not a, not a very efficient operation those ants are running. I had an ant problem in San Francisco, and I live really clean, so it was really frustrating because they were just trying to get inside during rainy season. Yeah. And there was like nothing I could do about it. It was just it was ridiculous. Like no matter how much I cleaned, what I sprayed, they would inevitably return to the scene of the crime over and over again. These dumb motherfuckers. And I was at war with these dudes for yeah. for years, but uh, they were winning. And I'm sure in that apartment, they're still there to this day. Yeah, I've definitely fought. I'll take I've dealt with ants. I've dealt with everything like stink bugs and roaches are the ones that I like. I cannot. I can't stand because they're just they're just unlikable creatures like an ant at mm. least has like two animated movies about them to get them like kind of like in your in your consciousness and be like, oh, I remember flick, you know, but uh, roaches aren't uh, aren't so keen. They all, all they do is survive. They do. I mean, they, they survive everything. I'm looking at I've heard this term stink bug before. Yeah, I, I didn't. I don't really know anything about them. I'm looking at the Wikipedia for them right now. This is a really horrifying looking creature. It almost looks it almost looks like flat in, in yeah. some way. Here. Yeah, they're yeah. they're they're really, really frustrating. Uh, they would they engulfed my house up in upstate New York constantly. Uh, they would like leak in through the air conditioners, hundreds of them, like like an insane amount. And they're bigger than you think they are. And they're annoying and they smell really bad if you kill them. So it's like you got to carefully dispose of them without like it's just a mess and they're like they, i think they got here through like a they they stowed away on like an import boat from like asia in like the early 1900s or something they're just a completely non what is the word indigenous yeah i think that's right yeah they're non-indigenous yeah i'm reading pests. about that i'm reading about this right now you're right yeah it's uh it's, it's pretty interesting. In the United States, thirty-seven million dollars in apple crops were lost because of the uh, the stink bug in two thousand ten. Yeah. So these little sons of bitches are there not now? There's oh my god! Now there's like pictures of fucking eggs and larvae. I can't look at this. Anymore. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Spare yourself. I don't want to look at that anymore. Well, thank you, Chris, for being here, and thank you everyone for joining us for what is ostensibly a PlayStation podcast called Sacred Symbols. We do it each and every week, and you can get it. Early and ad free, if I can speak early and ad free <laughs> on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins last stand. June 2020 was our biggest month yet, and we are really appreciative of that. We're moving into July now. So come join us on Patreon at the dollar level, two dollars level, five dollar level, whatever you can afford. You get all sorts of special perks. The biggest perks of all of all are, of course, I can't speak. The biggest perks of all, of course, is what I meant to say are. The ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show. We put up a thread every week. You can submit them. And that's where we read a whole litany of things from you. And of course, the early ad-free access we already mentioned. And Sacred Symbols Plus, which is our weekly supplemental podcast available only to patrons. Last week's was the first of a two-part spoiler cast for The Last of Us Part 2. We did not intend on doing a two-part spoiler cast, but we had so many great questions and comments from the audience that we wanted to extend it. So this cumulative Sacred Symbols Plus adventure into The Last of Us 2 land called the United States, I guess, in 2038 is uh, going to be about four hours long. And <laughs> I was reading I was reading some of the feedback from the show. A lot of people, not a lot, I want to say a lot of people. I think most people listened to it and liked it a lot. But some people kind of listened to it and thought that I didn't talk enough 
in the show. I always feel like I talk too much. So that was a strange piece of feedback that I did not anticipate. So I guess I need to be more mindful of that moving forward. And I'll just continue. I'll just cut Chris off and do all those kinds of things to make sure he speaks as little as possible. Yeah. Uh, on the second part, because we are going to do the second part that will be live soon. So go to patreon.com slash Collins last stand if you want to check those out. We did get a lot of Last of Us 2 related questions to this particular episode. Again, we talked about it pretty extensively last week on the show, too. Uh, we're not going to talk about the game too deeply on this show anymore because we we dedicated like a half an hour to it last week. We'll talk about it a little bit this week, but four hours on Sacred Symbols Plus, I think, is is more than enough right now. And I'm a little leery of ruining the game for anyone. I don't want to be one of those guys. Not yeah, everyone's played yeah. it yet, obviously. Oh, so go look forward to that. Uh, as usual, I'll remind you that Twin Breaker, our game is out. It's on PS4 and Vita. It is shipping and all of this now, I'm getting some feedback. We have been getting feedback as people slowly get the games. A lot of these packages are getting s- stuck in customs in your various countries of origin. So just be patient. They're, they're coming to you. But we did get a letter from Will Selfridge. who said, hey, boys, just wanted to say fuck thieves. I've been away from my apartment to look after my mom. And in the interim, someone stole some packages in front of my apartment and included were my copies of Twin Breaker. So, yeah, whoever stole my shit, I hope you choke on the Vita cartridge. That's uh, that's really unfortunate, Will, and I'm really sad to hear that. So message me on Patreon. DM me on Patreon and I will send you a copy. I have a whole box of them, so I will send you a copy of the game. I'm sorry that it got stolen from you. No one else messaged me about it because I'm not sending anyone else a copy of the game. <laughs> just Will. Just Will Selfridge. Hit me up. I'm sorry that that happened. You thieves are the worst. Speaking of the game, though, I do want to talk about this for a moment. I'll get Chris's feedback on this as well, but... We had kind of discussed this in passing. I never really went too deep into it, I don't think, on any of the shows, but maybe I did. For a few months, I've been working to acquire uh, a portion of Lily Mo Games, the Canadian developer that made Twin Breaker, and it also made a game called Habroxia, and before that made a game called Perils of Baking. And that has gone through. All the paperwork is signed. I officially own 49% of Lily Mo Games now, oh, wow. uh, which, is, which is based in Ontario. And uh, actually, it's a subsidiary, actually, of Collins Last Stand. Collins Last Stand bought... Lilymo, 49% of it. I wanted to bring that up for two reasons. Number one, just to let you all know that this is happening. So I'm the chief creative uh, director or officer of the studio, and I'm the lead writer of the studio now. So I'll be writing everything moving forward and kind of directing the creative vision of the studio. But I also wanted to bring that up because while our profit of Twin Breaker is pretty clear, we it's a game about this show and it's a game I wrote. So obviously I make money on that. I often said in the past, Chris, that I wasn't making money on Lily Mo's other games and people should go check those out. So Habroxia and Perils of Baking. That was true. That is no longer true. So I just want to clear that up. If you buy Habroxia now or Perils of Baking on any of the platforms they're available on, I will make money on those games now. So right. I want to I want to just be very, very clear that moving forward, everything Lily Mo makes, I will profit on. I want to amend previous statements that were made before the acquisition and so, yeah, I own 49% of Lily Mo or CLS does and just wanted to let everyone know that. So thank you for your time. Any thoughts on that, Chris? I mean, it's pretty wild. How do you feel yeah. about it? It's exciting. I mean, it's I'm so busy all the time that it's more work for me to do, but it's a way for me to segue my energies into other things that I want to do. And I've always wanted to make more games. And Twin Breaker was just the beginning. And I was very I'm very proud of Twin Breaker, but it is just the beginning. It is just the beginning of my ambition. Yeah. In game dev. And I think Barry Johnson, who owns 51% of the studio, is a great partner, hardworking, industrious, intelligent, kind, 
all these kinds of things that you want in a partner. He also lives in Ontario, so we never have to see each other. So that's also <laughs> another uh, plus to it as well. So yeah, wanted to throw that out there. Lilimo Games continues unabated. Our next game will be Habroxia 2, which I am writing that comes out this fall. And then uh, Twin Breaker 2 will be next year. And then our JRPG will be, we think, in 2022. So thank you for listening to all of that. Now let's get into some corrections and notes here from the audience, Chris, before we get into what we're playing and the news of the day. Danny Rogers wrote in and said, salutations, boys. I never thought I would write in with a correction for the show, but seeing as I've yet to see anyone mention this massive fuck up, I feel like I'm forced to. There's no way I I was the only one screaming in agony. In agony, he says, as Colin went on and on about Conan and Xena being crossover shows during their new and improved drop segment, he clearly doesn't respect Kevin Sorbo or his legendary journeys. And to make it worse, you just know Chris was sitting there like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's Hercules, bro. Speak up, Maldonado. So <laughs> so that was a really egregious error that I actually realized pretty, pretty quickly. Someone told me that and I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. I can't believe that. It's one of those mistakes I made where I damn well know that it was Hercules and Xena. Not Conan and Xena. I did watch these shows as a kid. I watched them every week. I think my my dad thought I was being perverted watching Xena. Yeah. You know, Lucy Lawless or whatever. But I really like wasn't into women at that time in middle school, really. So I was really watching it because I thought it was good. And uh, so, yeah, that is an egregious error. Did you realize that I made that error, Chris? Is Danny's instinct right? No, no. I only watched Xena. That mm. was, I, I had no knowledge of Conan or Hercules. I didn't I didn't pay attention to that at all. I only know that Xena the Warrior Princess is a thing, and I think I watched it on, oh my god, was it on that channel where Wishbone was on? I feel like it was. Wishbone was on PBS, wasn't it? I don't know, but I feel like I saw it elsewhere. I, it I was know. on, I feel like I watched it on like UPN or something like that. <laughs> UPN. <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that network in years. Oh my god. What happened to them? Because the WB turned into the CW, that still exists, but UPN... They turned into something. I got to look this up here. Yeah, they had like uh, a what do they have? They had like that Monique show. Well, I think a lot of it like towards the end was kind of directed towards like a black audience. Yeah, like towards the last 10 years or so, I feel like a lot of their programming was aimed at like just the the kind of the black suburban audience. But I'm trying to find what the hell happened to them. CBS Corporation and Time Warner. Jointly announced on January 24th, 2006, that the companies would shut UPN down. Oh, oh, so they shut down the WB and the UPN and then combined them into the CW. Oh, that's weird. what it is. That's so weird. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was a, I was a big I used to watch like a lot of these shows on UPN. I used to watch hockey on UPN as well. There were hockey games on UPN. But so I don't know what I'm even talking about. Oh, yeah. Hercules. Legendary Journey. So Xena, I believe, was a spinoff of Hercules. She was like in Hercules and then she had her own show. That's where Lucy Lawless became famous. Of course, Lucy Lawless is best, though, of course, in Battlestar Galactica. But yeah, I, I, Danny, you're right. I did get some other letters about this. I'm sorry. All right. I'm sorry. Her name is Lawless. Yeah, Lucy Lawless. You definitely you know who she is. Yeah, of, well, of course, I watched Xena, but I didn't know that, that was her name. Yeah. Do you remember what was the chick? Uh, you know, her like blonde companion on uh, Xena. Yeah, what was her companion's name? I got to look this up. It was why am I I should probably be doing this when I'm not. What what the hell was her companion's name? It was like some blonde chick and she used like a bow staff. I genuinely fight. cannot for the life of me even come close to remembering. Oh, Gabrielle, that's her name. I remember her. Yeah, Gabrielle. She, she was also yeah. punk rock girl in 2002's Spider-Man. Oh, interesting. I don't even know what the hell that means. 
She was at. Why was she at Comic-Con in 2016? Oh, Ash versus the Evil Dead. Oh, that makes sense. She's the main character in that. She was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, yeah, she's in Parks and Rec. I totally forgot about that. Wild. Uh, yeah, and then she was in Battlestar, of course, as Deanna Be- uh, Beers. And then Xena. 19- Xena ran until 2001. Go figure. Okay, well, that's enough of that. Dylon wrote into us, Chris. He wanted to kind of correct something as well. He said, Bunos, how do you say this? Buenos Diaz, right? Buenos Diaz? Buenos Diaz? What? Buenos Diaz? Bia Buenos. Buenos. God, I'm, I'm so white. <laughs> Hello, Sacred Colin and Symbolic Chris. On episode 104, Colin mentioned that Batman Arkham Origins is the bastard child of the Arkham series and is largely overlooked and seemingly unacknowledged by Rocksteady's trilogy. However, in Batman Arkham Knight, if the player navigates to the GCPD evidence room, there are multiple examples of Origins' canonical existence in Rocksteady's trilogy, including gear from the Electrocutioner and Anarchy, as well as specific bits of dialogue from cops and criminals, distinctly referencing the events of Arkham Origins. To be clear... I think Origins is great and absolutely should have been included in the Return to Arkham collection on PS4. I don't mean this as a correction, but more of an insight. Enjoy your new lodgings, you magnificent bastards. Thank you, Dylon. Uh, I think that's totally reasonable. It's not one of the annoying corrections that Chris gets really upset about. Yeah. So I think that these are two Danny and Dylon. I think these are two fine corrections. Chris, let's get back into Logan Williams's saga from last week. If people recall the deodorant in the butt saga. Uh, yeah. He writes in all caps, deodorant in the butt crack follow up. He wanted to catch my attention and catch my attention. He did. He said, hello, my gentlemen. Following up from last week, I take umbrage with Chris's response that I just need to shower in quotes. I shower daily, maybe even twice if I run. I am one of those hippie natural. De- I oh, all right. I am one of those hippie natural deodorant users, so I don't use it to stop from having swamp ass. To be honest, I'm not a very sweaty person. I do have a large ass and I do use two separate sticks and the same scent. All right. So that answers one of the important questions I had. There is just nothing better than getting out of the shower, taking a small squat and putting a swipe or two between the cheeks. Being a manscaper, having a smooth lubed up butt crack also makes wiping a joy. I got to say, I think you should try it. I used to use baby powder like Colin. I would puff up the old Franken beans after the shower. My wife even called it ghost penis. I guess I'll leave it there. Have a happy fourth, fellas. So, Chris, we have some new information here from Logan. I don't know if the story ends here. I don't know if we have any more follow ups for him. But how do you feel about this? First of all, how do you feel about him using the natural deodorant? I hate that shit. Yeah, that's barely anything. You you actually might as well just not even do it. Like, right. I, I feel like you, you're not doing anything. I feel like it's like a placebo. What are, isn't natural deodorant just like oil? I, I don't really know. It's like, you know, like Tom's from Maine, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know that brand? Yeah. That's what I think about. Just use a I real deodorant stuff. Yeah. Just use some. I use Dove. I like Dove for men. Yeah. Quite a bit. I just use literally anything that I find that, that is deodorant. Oh, OK. Fair enough. I don't have like a, I don't have like a weird preference. Like I don't I don't go to like the 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 what is it? The the soap aisle and have like a specific soap or shampoo or deodorant. Really? Out. No. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't That's crazy. I just figure like if it's if it's deodorant and it's soap and it's shampoo, it's going to do what it's supposed to do because they wouldn't sell it if it didn't. So like I'm I'm totally fine swapping scents and like I, I just don't care. Interesting. But but they do sell the natural hippie deodorant that Logan uses and that doesn't work. I, I've always been. Well, maybe it, I mean, it seems to work for Logan because I got to say I'm one of the I can relate to Logan where I'm not really much of a sweater. I've been with, you know, girls that I've been with in the past have always remarked like how I just smell really neutral. Like, I don't smell like anything, even when I'm, like, working out or sweating or whatever. So I've actually come, unless I'm, like, going out or, like, I know I'm going to be around people, I don't wear deodorant at all. 
because I've actually been instilled with this fear in my mind, which I think is only for antiperspirant and not so much deodorant. Remember how they used to say, like, if you wore antiperspirant, like you would get breast cancer, even if you were a man, because like the sweat glands can't breathe. And then all of that shit gathers under the armpit or whatever. This was a thing when I was a kid and it always stuck with me. So Hmm. a few years ago, when I started working from home, I'm like, fuck it, I'm not wearing deodorant at all unless I'm unless I really need it. But I do shower like twice a day. Typically, I like to shower quite a bit. I love being in the I was actually in the shower for like an hour today, which was kind of nice. I actually just said I just stood there thinking and drank a beer in the shower today. Oh, that's the best. Yeah, drinking drinking like a cold beverage in a glass bottle in a hot shower is like amazing. No, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. So what were we talking about here? Oh, yes. Logan Williams. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess no judgment from you. You got to do what you got to do. I think the big thing that I wanted to know is if you use separate sticks and you say you do. My question, though, is that you have. All right. So this gets a little complicated, Chris, because he says he uses the same scent. So presumably these sticks look the same. So how do you tell them apart? Is does one have like your ass hair in it or something? Yeah, you know? maybe maybe peels the label off one of them. Hmm. That's always the smart way to, do, to go about it whenever you have two of something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, Logan, thank you for following up with us. We appreciate this new saga on our show and happy fourth to you as well. And then now this is going to just drive you into a rage. I think this kind of <laughs> ancillary follow up. Kate O'Brien wrote into us and said, hello, gentlemen. Writing in the follow up on the deodorant conversation from last week, while I don't put deodorant in my butt crack, I do put deodorant in my leg crevices (laughs) like armpits. Even after a shower, things can get a bit musty, especially during the summer. It's necessary to keep things fresh and clean down there. I definitely use a separate stick for arms and legs, but nonetheless, I found this commentary relevant. Keep up the great work and congratulations to Chris for moving out of that child torturing apartment and Colin on Rush's new house. Thank you. Chris, how do you feel about Kate O'Brien putting deodorant in the leg crevices? I, I just don't. What? So, so what? A le, what is what even is a leg crevice? Isn't that just your groin? It's no. I think what he's talking about is behind the knee, where the thigh attaches to the whatever that is, the what? lower leg. I think that's what he's talking about. That makes even less sense. Yeah. You're. I, 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 I mean, he could be talking about Do you think he's talking about like where the where the thigh attaches to the ass? I don't. Is I, that what he means? I I'm just having a tough because he would have said, like, w- would you refer to the back of your knees as a leg crevice? Like, I don't know. I, I don't think I would. I, was, I feel like I would refer to it as the back of my knees. I'm looking up leg crevice, seeing what happens when I look up leg crevice. For some reason, the first thing that comes up is a book and a film, both Wikipedia, touching the void. I'm and then Joe Simpson, <laughs> how I survived my climbing accident. So I, I don't think this is a term. I'm, I don't think this I'm, is a term. I'm spiraling, man. I, I, I can't even begin to grasp like what we're talking about here. I'm going to need to follow up on what a leg crevice is. But if it's if it's if you're putting deodorant behind your knees, I, I don't even know how to help you. Like, is it is, is it for your dog? As it's walking beside you, so it doesn't smell your sweaty back of the knees. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm such defeated. I know. I don't. I should have read that at the end because now I don't even want to do the rest of the show. <laughs> that's it. Take care, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. How long have we been going? Twenty minutes. That's good enough. Twenty minutes is good enough. All right. Let's hear from. I like this question from Zach Dalton. And I really understand what he's saying here. He says, hey, friends, simple question. Do birds get enough credit 
for being the descendants of dinosaurs. Do birds get enough credit for being the descendants of dinosaurs? I got to say, I, I hear Zach here. I feel like they don't. I feel like they don't get enough credit. Uh, I feel like they don't deserve it. No. 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 You don't get to just take the credit of your ancestors, especially when they're that far removed. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 if anything, your ancestors really set you up for failure by devolving you to the to horrendously weaker state that you are now as a, as a generic bird. A cassowary who still manages to maintain the durability of a dinosaur, in, at least in my eyes, that's respectable. I respect that because despite its million years of de-evolution, it's still a threatening beast that I would want no part of. But like a sparrow or like a pigeon or a chicken, like an Oriole, you don't want any part of it. Yeah, you don't want like you could just punch an Oriole out if you wanted to just kill it. I could, you know, I could even even some of the more threatening, like mundane, like first world birds, like swans. Like I, 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 I fear no swan. I, I, I fear no swan. Not even the swan from Curb Your Enthusiasm that like chases Larry and he and Larry ends up killing it with a golf club <laughs> in the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. No. I uh, I don't know, man. Swans. Every time I see a video of a swan chasing somebody, I just I can't help but just think like, why aren't you just strangling this thing? It's yeah, got, just turn around and kick it. It's got the most strangleable neck of the animal <laughs> kingdom. <laughs> it really does. You're totally right. And it's also its body is shaped like a large football. So you should just turn around and fucking boot it. Yeah. You know? I, I would have no, no, no qualms about punting a swan. Yeah, they must get wild if people are that scared of them. You know, I, I don't know why else you would run from. I've never been chased by a swan. Yeah, I've never so been maybe, chased by maybe a swan in either. that moment, maybe in that moment, I would I would also fear the swan. I don't know. Well, what it is, they do that wing thing, right, where they open their wings up to seem like bigger than you. But you can't fool me. You can't no, fool me. You're, you're smarter than that. Yeah. You you're know, gonna, you know you gonna what's punch going me on. with your wing, idiot. When I was staying at my mom's waiting for my house uh, to be ready she has like a backyard that faces these woods. And I did notice I'm not much of a bird watcher or a birder. I think they're called mm -hmm. uh, in ornithological terms. But she had like a bunch of birds in the backyard, including like this family of blue jays and cardinals. Where wow. I was like, wow, these are re really pretty color. It makes me wonder like how evolutionarily these bright birds survived for so long because you see like a fucking normal little brown shitty bird and you're like, I don't care. I don't give a shit about this bird. But you see like a cardinal or an oriole or a blue jay or whatever. And you're like, wow, this is like a really look at the beautiful colors. You would assume that, that that would attract a lot more attention to them. I was reading recently about the carrier. What is it? The carrier pigeon, I think, mm -hmm, which yeah. was like a really prolific bird in the North American continent until like 120 years ago or something. And it just went totally extinct. And if you read about how it went extinct, it's fucking crazy. People were slaughtering these motherfuckers. By like the thousands and thousands, like setting up massive nets to catch them. And and they just they just put them out. They were done. That was the end of the, the carrier pigeon. Are carrier so. pigeons not just pigeons? No, a carrier. No, I think so. I think they're smaller. And uh, what the fuck? Let's see. Yeah. Where is the extinct extinct? Uh, maybe I'm talking about the wrong one. Extinct is always oh, the passenger pigeon. Is that what I'm? Yeah, the pat. The pa I'm sorry, the passenger pigeon, the passenger pigeon is extinct, not the not the other kind of pigeon. Oh, yeah. That looks like a different kind of bird. Yeah. Yeah. The, look at this. You seen the Wikipedia, like the black and white. Yeah. Picture yeah. of this thing, because I think they had some in captivity until like, you know, 100 years ago. That that doofy looking motherfucker was one of the very last of his uh, kind. I thought I, I genuinely thought you, you were making like I, I thought it was like wrong for so many years where I just thought that 
the ca- like the carrier pigeon and the pigeon were just the same thing, and they just used pigeons as carriers. You tripped oh. me out. I thought that you, you made me think that they were like different, <laughs> completely different species. No, I think they're they're birds of some kind, just like the uh, you know, because I do like the connection between the dinosaur and the bird because it was cool when they figured out, I guess, with some. So I was going to say some relics, some uh, artifacts <laughs> that they found, <laughs> uh, where they uh, they found like you know fossils, and there was like evidence that the that birds had like feathers. It's pretty pretty cool. Well, that dinosaurs had feathers, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, but dinosaurs had feathers, right? Yeah, you're it's, right. that's sorry, crazy. Yeah, you. it is. Did you see the picture of the 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 bat that's about the size of a of a five year old boy? Oh yes, I saw that. Uh, Barstool Sports tweeted that out. I'm sure other people did as well. And I, that was I said this to them. I'm like, that might be literally the scariest thing I have ever, ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Yeah, it's just this emaciated boy with wings like hanging upside down. And he's basically like a mutant. It's so tall. It's so much bigger than I thought it would be. Oh, it's it's fucked up, dude. I mean, what what that picture is, is is fucked up. <laughs> I was like, it's like something out of Castlevania where I'm like, this is not this is not acceptable to be existing in the real world. Like, how are you not murdering that thing? Right? <laughs> if I saw that thing flying around, I would make it my whole life's mission to make to eradicate them from the entire planet. Yeah, they're they're uh, definitely un- that thing un- has to be four feet tall, man. I mean, that thing has to be four <laughs> feet tall. Yeah, it's it's not all right. It's not an all right thing to see. It's a it's a it's a ghostly visage for sure. That is impressive, though, that they can be that size. It is impressive. It's more impressive that it's just hanging there on someone's house and it's just and it's got its wings around it. It's like, man, this is vampiric, man. I don't like this at all. You could definitely see where the where vampire legends came from, if, if that's like a thing that's been around for a long time, which it obviously clearly is. Definitely. I mean, if you if you're hey, if you're walking around Transylvania in the 1600s and you're seeing this shit. Yeah, I would imagine that you're uh, living on the edge (laughs) over there. No doubt about it. Uh, Finally, before we get into what we're playing, Nick Eden wrote into us. I'm actually curious about your opinion on this because this is a divisive topic, even in my in our native New York, where I think this is most prevalent. He says, sup, boys, tell me why it's okay for ketchup to be on eggs. It's delicious. Please agree. Love you both and take care. Chris, do you like ketchup on eggs? I'm not a ketchup person in general. That's right. So like, That's right. I, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. So I don't really put ketchup on anything, but I, I've never, I've never considered it like an affront to put ketchup on eggs because I've seen it done a lot. Um, so I just assume that it's like a normal thing. So when you get a bacon, egg and cheese in New York on a Kaiser roll or a bagel or whatever at the local deli, do you, what do you put on it? Do you put any sort of moist condiment on it mayonnaise uh, or something uh maybe if i sometimes mayonnaise but like i i don't even really i just get a bacon egg and cheese and i'm fine with it like so I, there's I ketchup because there's ketchup on that so you're okay with that being on on there or, or are you saying you just get it with nothing else i get i get a, bacon, i get a bacon egg and cheese and that's okay. that's what i if it's dry then i just won't get a bacon egg and cheese from that place again because i've had uh, bacon egg and cheeses that like where the egg is the egg is like moist enough to keep it like really uh, to keep it from being like insanely dry. It's funny because well, I don't know if it's funny or even interesting, but growing first of all, my first job, my first real job was in a deli in high school for several years. And I would like cook the egg sandwiches and stuff. Yeah. And when I went to Boston for college and then to California for IGN and all that, and I would put ketchup on like 
I don't put ketchup on like eggs if they're just by themselves. But if I would make an egg sandwich or something, I would put ketchup on it. And this would like make people aghast. And I was like this and where I'm from. It, it's weird not to put ketchup on your egg sandwiches. That's what you do. You, I like putting mayonnaise on it, too, but it feels a little redundant because yeah. it, the main ingredient of mayonnaise is indeed an egg. So, yeah, yeah, I yeah. I, I understand that. I, I yeah. um, I think what it is, it's like I'm I'm more of a drinker than an eater. Like I'll drink like a million times a day, but I'll, I could have like maybe two meals and be fine. So like I've never been in a situation where I'm eating something dry and I don't have an immediate remedy for it because I, I always have something. I'm always sloshing something down my gullet. So like I never I've never needed. Oh, man, this is so dry. I wish I had like mustard or ketchup on it. Uh, Ugh, I'll experiment yeah, though. Like I'll I'll put yeah. like you know uh, every now and then I'll put ketchup on an egg sandwich just out of you know just to spice things up a little bit. But it's it's not like a thing that I go out of my way to do. When you go to our beloved Five Guys, mm-hmm. do you get mayonnaise or a one or something on your burger? Uh, hmm, no, no. I just get the the burger with the lettuce and tomato and whatever the hell. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that answers that, I guess. And 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 bacon. Yeah, and bacon, which, again, is a very divisive topic for me. I saw you tweet out about that, and you claim that everyone like me were vegans. I, I There's no greater <laughs> insult than to call me a vegan. First first rule of vegan club, tell everyone about vegan club. One of my, still, still probably one of my favorite. The only meme that I can think of that I love more than that meme is the meme of the pregnancy test, and it says just fat oh on, the, on the thing, which is like... Sounds like a Joe Biden quote. Yeah, exactly. It does. I still I see that every once in a while and it fucking makes me bust out laughing where it just says just fat. I love I just absolutely love that. I think it's so funny. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. All right, Chris, let's talk about this is a PlayStation podcast, I promise. So let's talk about. What we are playing, it says here you're playing our beloved Horizon Zero Dawn from Guerrilla Games. What made you want to go back to Horizon? Yeah, I mean, I'd been meaning to go back to it. And now that the now that um, 
pretty much The Last of Us 2 is done and Ghost of Tsushima is like kind of on the horizon. I think I have enough time to really kind of sink my teeth into uh, Horizon because I never really got a chance to finish it. Like I, I played it initially for a little bit and I, it just kind of lost me and I just sort of fell off it and there was no way that I was going to jump back in where I was. Uh, also because I just lost all my save data anyway. So, so I'm, I'm going going into it from the beginning just to see what I missed, maybe figure out if I feel differently now than I did then. Uh, and I'm really, I'm not far into it. I'm really only up to the, uh, up to the part, the part where you're looking for Rost uh, in the, in like the, pretty much the intro sequence. Like you're, I'm no longer a child. I'm, no, I'm no longer kid Aloy, uh, but it's, it's really, really early. So it's, it's hard for me to really say that I've, I've seen much of anything to change my mind, but I will say, man, uh, Something that bothered me then and, and still does, especially now, uh, the the animations, specifically during cutscenes of people's faces, look really uncanny, and they're they're really like porcelain and kind of creepy. And like child Aloy looks like uh looks like a little person playing a child. You know what I mean? Like she waddles. <laughs> yeah. She has that waddly quality, and and like it's it's. <laughs> It's it really is dissettling. That's that's the main reason why I wanted to restart it so I could just like get past that point so I could go to the non uncanny valley uncanny valley uh, adult Aloy and not have to see that Chucky looking monstrosity. Um, <laughs> yeah, you had to like you had to confront it in order to move past it. Yeah, yeah, I had to be like, okay, yeah. I'm gonna redo this, but I, I just want to, I just, I really want to rip this bandaid off. But uh, it's it's gorgeous still. Like the 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 environments are still really good looking even even now. Yeah, are you feeling optimistic that you're going to enjoy it more this time? Or Yeah, I or think what? so. I think I have a better yeah. uh, handle on those kinds of games. I think I, I think just the fact that it's so removed from the, the, con- the public consciousness and like it's not something that people talk about. Back when I played it, like everybody was talking about it and everybody was like getting on my ass about playing it. And uh, I just wasn't feeling it. So now it's like, okay, now I'm just playing this of my own accord. I want to play it. Uh, I don't feel pressured into it. It's, it's it's nice already. It's nicer. Oh, very. That's good to hear. So I actually have to return the horizon in the coming months myself because Dagan and I have to do a topic for Knockback, an episode of Knockback about it, our retro podcast that was voted on by the audience. And it's it's really goes to show how broken I am because I I'm like, oh, I already got the platinum trophy in it. I don't even really want to play it again. And that really shouldn't be relevant at all. But I never did play the that winter spinoff like expansion thing. Oh, winter, yeah. Winter, whatever it's called. And uh, there's also, I think, New Game Plus and stuff and, and a harder difficulty that they put in as well and attach trophies to that. So I think I'm going to go in and do... I think I still have my save and stuff in the cloud. I'll just go in and play New Game Plus. So I'm actually looking forward to playing it too because in seeing Forbidden West, which is the Horizon PS5 game, as we know, that is going to come out, I think, in 2021. It's like, well, I might, might as well reacclimate myself to Aloy's story because it has been a long time. I mean, that game came out so long ago relatively speaking, that I was still at kind of funny when Horizon came out. So it's uh, it's been a while. I think I played it in what, February or March of 2017. So yeah, it was it's been more than three years. So it is time to go back to it one last time. So I'm glad to hear that you're going back to a good first party game as we prepare ourselves and steal our uh, our steal ourselves for Ghost of Tsushima, which I want to talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm still playing The Last of Us Part Two. I haven't played it in a few days. I've actually been playing at night Castlevania Rondo of Blood. I'm so bad at it that it's actually frustrating me. It's it's making me annoyed about how much my gaming skills are atrophying where I'm like, I can't even get pay, past the fourth stage in a Castlevania game. I want to fucking kill myself. But 
so I don't know what's going on with me there, but I've also been trying to just truck through The Last of Us Part Two. I've been playing it on Twitch. I did like a three-hour stream the other day, Long Island Viper, if you guys want to follow me there. And I just want to play it again, just to not only get the Platinum Trophy, but just to see some of the things I missed, because there was actually a big, I won't talk about it here, no spoilers, but there is a, a decently decent-sized component to the story that I actually missed completely, and we talked about it in the first part of the, the Last of Us Part Two spoiler cast we did on Sacred Symbols Plus, and I want to rectify that. So there must be other things I missed too. I Sometimes I feel stupid when I play a video game that has a dense story and I, I miss things. Yeah. And it seems like everyone else gets it but me. I felt that way about Control when we did the Control spoiler cast where I'm like, I don't even really understand this game. And it's and there's like all this deep lore. So maybe I just don't pay close enough attention. Yeah. Uh, or maybe I'm stupid. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I have that issue sometimes too. Where I'm just like, I, I, I have a, I, how did, how was I supposed to know about this? You know? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I don't know. I just, it's like when you see a movie, I guess you can't keep up with everything and, or you don't keep up with everything, especially in TV shows where sometimes I'm watching something and I'm like, what the fuck is happening here? I don't even understand this. And it was like something I missed five episodes ago. Or if you watch like the game of Thrones and you just have no idea what's going on. I just, I just, I just kind of rolled with that one. Yeah. You know, uh, it's like, well, I'm just going to keep going. All right, let's talk a little bit about Ghost of Tsushima, though, before we move on, because it is irrelevant now that it's coming up in just a couple of weeks. Actually, it is out in reviewers' hands right now. We are not considered reviewers or even living entities by Sony PR, so we obviously are not going to get the game. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll buy it when it comes out. I'm looking forward to it. I'm ha- I'll happily buy Ghost of Tsushima to support Sucker Punch. But Hunter Holiday wrote into us, said, hey, guys, after the release of The Last of Us Part Two, does your hype for Ghost of Tsushima increase at all? Thanks for being the best podcast I listen to. This is an interesting question, Chris. I'm, I'm especially keen to get your opinion on this because you didn't really like The Last of Us Part Two very much. So what is what is your hype level for Ghost of Tsushima now? Has it altered at all in the wake of The Last of Us? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my hype was never like particularly high. Like I, I was always interested in playing it, but I'm certainly more keen on playing it now uh, only because I, I expected to have a better time with uh, a Naughty Dog game than I ended up having. So, yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely looking more forward to it than I, I was before. I'm looking forward to just jumping into a kind of a, a samurai type type experience again, because it's been a while since I played Sekiro, too. Not that that was like necessarily samurai, but, you know, I I'm looking forward to it. I still think it, I still think Ghost of Tsushima is going to be like a, a solid game. I don't know if it's going to be like a great like uh, like a. 10 out of 10 experience, but I, I, I don't imagine that I'm going to dislike Ghost of Tsushima. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I've been saying it from from the go, especially when we saw the gameplay finally uh, of an extended variety for the game. And I'm like, this game looks like it's going to be good, oh, maybe great. And I, I have no doubt about that. And I like Sucker Punch a lot. I'm a huge infamous fan and I love Sly Cooper. So I've been with them for a long time. And so I'm, I'm eager to play anything they, they have to put out. And especially because it's they've been quiet for a long time. First Light came out in like what 2014 2015 when we got we got second sudden first light so it's been a long time since we've seen something from sucker punch so there's a lot of anticipation just from that yeah that genetic standpoint let's say of, of seeing what they're up to and what they put out here i think my hype has gone up a little bit for it because now i don't know what have, that has anything to do with either game though i think it's just that the last of us part two is just occupying so much of my bandwidth and thinking about it and playing it getting through it and anticipating it. So now I can segue over to Ghost of Tsushima. Now I'm anticipating it because now it's the next up on the list for me. Yeah. And so I think that's it's just a more of an order of operations thing. I don't think it has anything to do with either game, but I am looking forward to playing Ghost of Tsushima. At the time we're recording this, it'll come out in about two weeks. So we will not have to wait very long. And obviously we'll do a spoiler cast for that as well. 
Paul McFerrin wrote into us and said, hey, C-squared, hope all is well. My question to you, with the overtly negative Metacritic reviews for The Last of Us Part Two, would you find it surprising for Ghost of Tsushima to do the opposite? I predict a middling critical reception, but a praising fan score. That further divide between critical and consumer impressions would certainly be interesting. Stay well, fellas. What do you think of this? This is an interesting question from Paul. What? How do you think that the game is going to be re- received from players? Because the vocal player base of The Last of Us Part Two doesn't like the game. Doesn't mean that most people don't like the game. I think a vast majority of the people that play The Last of Us Part Two like it a lot. But the people that are going out of their way to say something positive or negative, it seems to have a negative patina to it. Mm-hmm. I feel like there might be some... I think Paul might be right. I think there might be some sort of compromise position with Ghost of Tsushima where people want to signal that they want something more gamey, uh, less political in some way or less social, let's say. What, what do you think? Do you think we're going to see something out of Ghost of Tsushima that's a reaction from the fan base to The Last of Us? Yeah, for sure. I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of reviewers probably looking at it and being like, especially as a follow-up to Naughty Dog's greatest opus yet, I don't think Ghost of Tsushima lives up to the Sony standard. Uh, I feel like there's probably going to be a little bit of that. I don't think it's going to be like six out of tens or anything, but I do think there's, there's going to be like, ah, you know, I can't help but feel negatively after the masterpiece that was Last of Us. And then I feel like uh, players are going to be like, I'm a samurai. This is awesome. I feel yeah, like they're I, not going to they're <laughs> not going to worry too much about the a ahistori- the a historical nature of it. And yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of complaints about that. There are going to be complaints about white people making the game. And I mean, th- th- there's going to be complaints about those kinds of things, I think. Yeah, well. but but I, I'm, I'm anticipating it to be I, I think it's going to have a hugely positive fan reception. I think it's the, the fact that you can and I don't know if this is like necessarily true, but it feels like there's like a general kind of favoritism towards like Japanese games. And gen- I, I don't think people have a negative opinion of Japanese games and not necessarily that um, Ghost of Tsushima is a Japanese game because it's not. But the fact that you can it's about Japan and everything is Japanese in it and you can you can play the whole game in Japanese. I think that's going to be like a huge win for a lot of people who don't normally get games like this uh, of this of this uh, caliber specifically in in triple A in the triple A space. I think people are going to really dig it. But that's just obviously I haven't played it yet. It's just all assumptions based on what I've seen. But yeah, I mean, and the embargo, the embargo is early, too. So I think they're co- they're maybe more confident than we thought. Yeah. In in the game. When's the embargo? I think it's three days before the game comes out. The embargo for The Last of Us was seven. So which is a huge embargo gap. So, yeah, I think it's the 14th or something like that. Hmm. Something of this nature. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. And it's funny you say this, Chris, because the reception of Japanese games has vacillated so greatly over time. And again, like you're saying, Sucker Punch is in Washington. They're not a Japanese studio, but this is a, a game that takes place in Japan in the in that um, samurai era in, on Tsushima Island or whatever it is. And so and with the Mongols and all that. So there's a historical kind of quality to it. But I, I feel like it's so funny watching the pendulum swing because it was only 10 years ago that everyone hated everything coming out of Japan. And now Japanese games have a really solid feeling or in regard to them, whether you're talking about FromSoft or you're talking about Platinum, talking about Tango or you're talking about Nintendo and you're talking about obviously Studio Japan and Polyphony and all these all these studios, they seem to any creates and others. There seems to be such a compensation. God, Capcom and all these others. It's just it's so different because Japanese gaming was dead. It was horrible, actually, for a while, like a little while. That's when KG and Afune and all those guys and Koji Igarashi were coming out and saying shit. And so 
it's cool to see that swing back, even though this isn't a, a literal Japanese game. Mm-hmm, yeah. But but I, I I'm with you there. I think that it's interesting. You know, I was going to tweet out about this last night, but I just I forgot. I think I got distracted. I was looking at games uh, on PSN, like games that went on sale because there's that one game that I want to buy that came out a, a couple years ago about the sh- the shopkeeper that like runs like an RPG shop item shop. And then he goes into dungeons at night and like gets items and then sells them. <laughs> and uh, I forget I forget what it's called. That's an awesome premise. Yeah, it's really cool. And I, I so I was looking at it, it's twenty bucks. So I was like, eh, that's a little expensive. But I was looking at all the games for sale, and I, then I was looking at the Japanese games like JRPGs and stuff. And I'm like, you might all of these games look and sound exactly the same. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying like the big AAA games and even the big AAA Japanese role playing games, but there's like that mid tier like Compile Heart style or CyberConnect tier role playing game where I'm like. There are literally 500 of these, and I have no idea what is different about any of them, any literally any of them. And I was just looking at the box art for them and reading the story synopses and stuff. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I, I almost have this morbid curiosity, and I wish I had more time in my like much more time. I'd be like, I want to play this stuff. Like, what is going on with these <laughs> games that all have the, these like weeb games that all have just the same looking characters, these kind of nonsensical titles and these same synopses. And it's just so that stuff is still happening in Japan, but there's just a higher level of game coming out of there finally. And we yeah. see that with Resident Evil. We see that with the Evil Within. We see that with Bloodborne and all of the rest. So Monster Hunter, Monster Hunter, of course. And there and Cap, I didn't put it in the news because there's not a lot of a lot to say about it. But Capcom is talking about making another Monster Hunter game that's aimed more at like teens and I'm like, that's a pretty shrewd idea, man. You, you get them hooked now like they were on PSP, especially in Japan and later 3DS and D- well, it's not DS, but 3DS. And then uh, you have a, a customer for Monster Hunter World 2 or whatever on console. So, yeah. All right. Let's get into the news. There's quite a bit to get through, although nothing too extraordinary, I don't think, to get through. But there's a few interesting notes. Yep. Yep. Number one. The Last of Us Part 2, the most recent release from Sony's crown jewel studio Naughty Dog, may be a divisive game critically, particularly with some hardcore fans of the IP. But commercially, it is officially a smash hit. In its first three days on the market, The Last of Us Part 2 exceeded 4 million copies sold, making it the fastest selling first party PS4 exclusive in the seven year history of the console. However, these sales figures are a little outdated. Reported for the period ending way back on June 21st, it's safe to assume that The Last of Us Part 2 will be one of the best selling PS4 exclusives ever. When the dust settles, if not the best-selling full stop. The Last of Us Part 2 launched on June 19th, and it is the follow-up to 2013's original The Last of Us, which first launched on PS3 and later came to PS4 in 2014. So we haven't gotten updated sales figures. There's some anecdotal evidence out of the UK and other places that track granular sales data on a weekly basis that the sales have fallen off substantially. But 4 million in three days is no joke for a PS4 game. And uh, my assumption is that I think I still think Uncharted 4 is the best-selling PS4 exclusive at 16 million if I, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly and I, I think the last of us part 2 is going to beat it. Mm. What do you, what do you think? Do you think that we're going to see a Do you think that everyone that was really interested is buying it now and now it's going to suffer like an with an anchor around its neck for whatever divisiveness it has or do you think people will continue to be interested in it? I think people will continue to be interested in it, but I I I do think it's probably going to fall off a little bit. I I I it's such a divisive game and it's such it's a game that has such a fascinating type of publicity around it that I could I could see it uh I could see it falling off a little bit quicker and it doesn't really have like 
I don't know. The Last of Us doesn't have like the swashbuckling quality that Uncharted has. You know, it's it's not a game that you buy and you think, oh, I'm going to have a good time with this. You know, <laughs> Last of Us really is like one of those things where it's like you're, you're going to really want to know if you want it. And you've probably made that decision already. Um, I have no doubt it's going to sell like a bunch like for years, but I, I, I don't know if it's going to beat Uncharted 4. If, it, if Uncharted 4 has 16 million, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the very least, we know that Naughty Dog will probably occupy the one and maybe th- at the least three spot because Spider-Man's in there. Yeah. Uh, I think 12 or 13 million. So, yeah, we'll, we'll track it. You're right that the divisive nature of it is fascinating from me. From my point of view, I like the game a lot more than you do, mm-hmm. but I'm finding the reaction to it and this persistent conversation around it even more interesting than the game, because I, I think it's this weird inflection point and kind of this coming to a boil of how people feel about video games, how people feel about pretentiousness or social issues and gaminess and storytelling and character and ownership. There's a lot of different narratives going on around The Last of Us Part Two that are so fascinating and, and much like Eve online and other games that are just way more interesting to read about than play. I imagine that it will be the case for The Last of Us Part Two for some time to come mm-hmm. that yeah. we're going to be we're going to be talking about that. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like I'm kind of like on an alien world sometimes because I really think the game is great. I'm, I'm so confused. Not even because you're, you're kind of more in the middle, but there are people that really hate it. And I'm like, what is so bad about it? I, I, I don't want to get too far into it because I don't want to spoil it for people here. But like, yeah. what is so bad about this game? It's so <laughs> it's so weird to me. I don't I just don't understand. Yeah, I don't yeah. get it. I, I, I don't, some people are extreme about it. And there were definitely I'll say full stop. There There are moments there were there were pretty long stretches of time where I, I I did truly despise it, like I I totally I totally understand it because it's just it's a game about character and you know when the characters don't land you're just kind of not having a good time for a really long time, so I, I totally understand why people just like really don't like it. I just don't think it's objectively like a a four out of ten or like a you know it's not objectively a bad game but like by any standard of measurement. It's just a divisive one, and I, I feel like it's just, I feel like it's like Death Stranding, and I feel like it's like uh, any number of games that have come out recently that have just been like, hey man, you either love it or you hate it. Like, you're not going to feel, you're not going to feel really okay about it. You know, I, I, I just don't like it, but I, I can remove myself from my own kind of headspace and be like, well, I don't like it, but it's not a bad game. You know, yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, those are two. I think. Well, maybe they're not the different things, but I feel like they're different things. Where you can, there's an objective quality to a game, however substantial or insubstantial or unsubstantial it is. Where it's, you can say like the game's beautiful, it's well acted, it's well animated, the combat's good, whatever the case might be. But I think people are certainly entitled to their opinions. I just, I don't like this extremism one way or the other kind of going on where it it makes it hard to to see or figure out how people really feel about it and. I, 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 you can't do this. You can't go back in time, but I would be so fascinated to know how this reception would be different in any way had the leaks not happened and set the sort of stage for anticipated disappointment. It's like what my brother says on our show, Knockback, sometimes. And we say to my family where it's like you go into a movie theater to see Star Wars and you have like your arms crossed and you're sighing and you're like just ready to be disappointed. And I feel like a lot of people went into The Last of Us Part Two like that. And I, I just... I wish I knew like how it would change. Yeah, yeah. If, it definitely if, if that, yeah. yeah, it definitely affected it. Like uh without a without a doubt. Um but I don't necessarily think people go into those games like necessarily 
well, not everybody goes into the, a game like trying to confirm their bias. Like I, I talk all the time about how much I was, ex- how excited I was to talk shit about Death Stranding, and it ended up being like a pretty marquee game for me. So yeah, yeah, you know, sure, sure, you're right, you're right, and I like that. I like Death Stranding a lot too. I don't know that I what I like more. I, I probably like The Last of Us Part Two more. Death Stranding was a little long in the tooth for me at some point, but but certainly a unique game. That I think everyone should play. I was sad that it didn't sell better, although it's coming out on PC very soon. So maybe it'll find new life. That's true. With our PC nerds via (laughs) 505 games. All right. Number two, this is the this is a big story here. And I feel like this is. I don't know. Let's let's, I'll just read it and then we can talk about what what exactly it is. Number two, we've been saying it on the show since it's it's its inception. And before that, in fact, but the cat is now seemingly out of the bag. Next gen games are going to cost more than current gen games do. Publisher Take-Two, particularly with its 2K brand, released word that its upcoming annualized basketball game NBA 2K21 will cost $59.99 USD on PlayStation 4, but $69.99 USD on PlayStation 5. While this isn't confirmation that all publishers will follow suit, it's essentially telegraphing that reality to consumers. If publishers went their own way on pricing, it wouldn't be unprecedented, but it would be the first time since the cartridge era that this was the case. In a comment given to website Kotaku, Take-Two PR said in part, quote, We believe our suggested retail price for NBA 2K21 on next generation platforms fairly represents the value of what's being offered, power, speed, and technology that is only available on new hardware, end quote. This change has been a long time in coming. AAA retail video game prices literally haven't increased in the United States in a staggering 15 years. And with game development becoming more and more expensive, player expectations growing exponentially, and inflation eroding the value of the dollar, this move was completely inevitable. Interestingly, the generational gap between the games will also be represented on the new game's cover. Current gen iterations of the game, including on PlayStation 4, will sport Dame Lillard of the Portland Trailblazers, while next gen iterations of the game, including on PlayStation 5, will include the New Orleans Pelicans Zion Williamson. NBA 2K21 comes to PlayStation 4 on September 4th, while the PS5 iteration will be a launch game for the console. All right, Chris. What do you think? We we have we have ostensible confirmation that next gen games will be seventy dollars, which is what I predicted for a long time. Yeah, I was starting to get I was starting to get afraid that it was going to be eighty, which I know was more your instinct, and I I was starting to think you might have been right. Seventy is kind of in the middle space, but we have confirmation. This is this is happening. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It it it, uh, it surprised me that it's not higher because I really don't think ten dollars is much of anything, and I don't think it's going to really do much of. I, I don't imagine it's going to do much of anything, but yeah, this is something that was coming for a long time. You know, I, I can't say I'm too staggered by it. Yeah, it's funny, too, because I think it was just last week we were wondering or maybe an audience member was wondering to us when we would hear about this. Will we hear about the game pricing before the consoles launched or before the consoles were revealed in terms of their price and pre-orders and all that. And we have our answer now. We, we The silence at the time we're recording this, it's worth noting this was announced the day we're recording this. So there hasn't been a lot of time for others to come out and talk about it. 2K is soliciting pre-orders for 2K21, so they needed to price it. But it would be hard for me to believe that an annualized sports game would cost $70 and Final Fantasy 16 or whatever is not going to cost $70. So I know a lot of people are holding on for dear life thinking yeah. that this is just a publisher decision, but it's not. And by the way, even if it was a publisher decision, this means that Rockstar Games, 2K's other games like the new Bioshock game and others, uh, anything from Private Division and others are all going to be of the same price. So you that's a big vertical right there. Yeah. $70, $70 isn't unreasonable. I think $10 is going to go a long way if 
they can sell enough copies of the game. And I think that's the big concern. If you go up to $80, which might be more palatable for your capitalistic side, if you're a business owner um, or a shareholder, I think $70 just isn't that market of a sticker shock. And I know other people in other countries are concerned about this in Canada, Australia, where they typically pay more, more for their games. And in Europe, even where they're paying some, you know, in both euro and pound, where they're paying more for games. But we don't know what the what this is going to reflect in your native countries. But it's also worth noting, and I I know Canadians don't like hearing this. I love our Canadians, but the Canadian dollar is really weak. The fact that you pay eighty dollars or seventy dollars for your game is meaningless because you're not paying seventy dollars USD. You're paying seventy dollars or eighty dollars Canadian. It's different. They're different dollars. So. I, whenever I, I put these these things out on Twitter and then people hear back, like, well, we're already paying $80 in Australia or whatever. And I'm like, they, that would be that would be relevant if you were paying $80 in American money in Australia, but you're not. So we have to wait and see what, if any, increases are going to come in these other places. But I think this is an I think you're right. This was inevitable. And I'm so glad the cat's out of the bag so we can just fucking move on. Although I think we're not going to be moving on anytime soon. I think we're going to see a lot of think pieces and a lot of hand wringing over this for some time to come. And uh, like I said, it was during the PS3 and 360 era, as you know, Chris, where prices last went up yeah. from 50 to 60 bucks. So it's worth noting that if you like, let's just go to 2008. I'm putting it in the inflation calculator now. If you were paying $60 in 2008 for a game, you're paying the, the real value of that is 7145. So that price increase of 19.1% inflation is actually pretty perfect. $70 is pretty much the encapsulation of the $60 value. So what I'm saying, I guess, is that even though it seems to some that they're getting gouged on this price increase, this actually just keeps up with the value of the dollar. There's actually no extra real profit going into this. And when you're talking about a game like Sean Layden just said this last week in the interview that we discussed, when you're spending $150 million on a game, whether or not that's right or not, whether when a game is costing that much money, you can't charge $60 for it anymore. It's just not possible. Final Fantasy VII, as I recall, was like a $20 million game, and that was considered like absurd in, uh, in, in 1997. So you're not making AAA games for $20 million anymore. And I, I think that this is a necessary thing. So I know I don't it's, it's important for us to note, too. We don't get our games for free. We pay for them. We yeah. pay for them just like you do. Most publishers don't give us games. We don't really ask for them. We don't really interact with any. So I can understand when people used to bust my balls at IGN are kind of funny and be like, well, you don't pay for your games. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's true. I don't. But now I do. And so I still have no problem with this. But uh, Mr. Worry wrote into us, and this is a very prescient name, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> he says, hey, CNC, the talk of software price increases has me worried. Not a huge surprise, Mr. Worry. Yes, costs of development have gone up. So has the inclusion of multiple additions, microtransactions, battle passes, loot boxes, and surprise mechanics. Every year, games are coming out with less fe features, fewer features, fewer features, Mr. Worry. Less and fewer. It's one of my pet peeves. And content so it can be resold to us bit by bit. I would gladly pay more up front to get a complete game. However, I see no evidence of these practices going away. If next gen is $100 Canadian with its current trend, gaming should be dead. Jesus Christ, Mr. Worry. All right. So I feel like Mr. Worry's or comment here, Chris, and I don't know if you agree with me. I feel like this comment is frozen in time. I feel like this is an argument from some years ago. Like mm -hmm. we don't have we have loot boxes. Yeah. And microtransactions and multiple additions. But this whole thing of like day one DLC and, and online passes and stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. That's not a thing anymore. Like that was a thing that happened and then went away. Well, you still have season passes, but they have different structures now. They're not like the season passes of like Uncharted, you know, like it's a very different type of model. 
I understand what he's saying. Like, like here's the caveat right here, right? If your game has microtransactions and any any kind of like in-game monetization, then your game shouldn't be seventy dollars. I think. I, I think your game should be sixty, or arguably even just less than sixty, uh, if you're going to monetize your game in the way that uh, in the way that microtransactions monetize games. Because I, I, I don't want to pay the price of a Last of Us or like a next generation like God of War game and then still be constantly nickeled and dimed after I've dropped like an absurd amount of money. Right. But this is where you and I kind of diverge a little bit because to me, like uh, microtransactions, especially like aesthetic ones, which is usually what are in games now, it's, it's becoming more rare for paid games to have paid gamified microtransactions as far as right. I can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but isn't that isn't that just optional? I mean, that's see, that's why this rings a little hollow to me. It's like, all right, you bought your $70. Let's say uh, The Last of Us Factions is like a full fledged multiplayer game. It's 70 bucks. You bought it for 70 bucks. You can play it online. No one's asking you to buy anything else or no one. They might be asking you. No one is forcing you to buy anything. Yeah. To yeah. Continue to, to, to go. So I, I don't know that that argument resonates with me. It's less about the game making you buy stuff and more about the game try, like trying its best to sell you stuff regardless. It, I feel like it cheapens the experience in the same way that an ad popping up in the middle of a mobile game cheapens the experience. That's how you know that you're playing a shitty game when an ad pops up or when something pops up that's made specifically or that's, or that's placed there specifically to trick you into buying something or to show something to you that way that they can get a return on investment on their advertising that they're pumping into the game. I get that it's like different because like ads on mobile phones are like completely like extraneous to the game and they don't really go back into the game's pockets in the same way because you're not buying stuff that's in the game. But I do still feel like it being sold something in real money in a real game that you've just paid a lot of money for. I feel like it just cheapens the experience. And beyond that, even when it is just cosmetic, it leads to this situation. And I, I've talked about this on, on Twitch a couple times where like. There's a reason why every single game looks like Fortnite now. And the re- or like, you know, obviously I'm being hyperbolic, but there's a reason why a lot of games look like Fortnite now, and it's because Fortnite looks like whatever will grab people's attention to sell because that game is full of non-gameplay affected monetized skins. And what happens when you monetize skins is okay, well, you let's say you have like a skin that's a purely cosmetic item. Uh, you buy it. All right. Well, how are you going to sell the next one? All right. Well, the next one needs to be more outrageous and more colorful and more bombastic and more zany. Okay. Well, then that trend continues. And then you have like a, a game that doesn't even look like the game it started as anymore. And then every game starts to look the same and it just looks like a giant clown vomiting on everything. It like, I, I don't think necessarily that it needs to be this way. I don't necessarily think that, you know, a game is doomed if it has microtransactions, but I do think that it does a detriment to both the the uh, the the feeling of how how cheap the game can feel sometimes, and just the overall detriment to the way that a game looks and the visual style that a game is initially developed with, completely being shat on by the monetization that is brought in by you know cosmetic items or even some gameplay modifying items. Yeah, you you make a really salient overarching point that I think is relevant, which is. If you're making a game, a paid for game, and then you're gamifying it on the back end with microtransactions, then what are you, what do you, what is the point of sale that's most important to you? Is it, is it making the $60 up front or is it doing like the FIFA Ultimate Team shit on the back end? And if that's the case, then why wouldn't FIFA Ultimate Team just be a free to play game 
where, you know, because they make like a shit ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars on Ultimate Team and FIFA and in Madden. Yeah. So, but the, the, I guess their argument would be like, well, you also make hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, selling the game regularly. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, that's fair. But like, that's the kind of thing. It's like if something if something is $30 and, it's my, and has microtransactions in it, I'm not going to complain at all. I might even try it out. But like if something's 70 to $60 and it's still got all this like bullshit in it, I'm probably... I'm probably not even going to look at it. And that's kind of the difference. It's it that kind of strategy just makes it completely unpalatable to people that might otherwise actually be totally in on it. Yeah, I I think you make interesting points and I I do I guess I understand some of the concern. I just when I think about a season pass for instance and I think about a game that I play like The Division 2 or or Borderlands 3, I'm like these are fucking huge games that give you so much content. Why do you feel entitled to get endless amounts of content for your $60 entry fee. I just see that uh, that's that's my major confusion. It's like, so you paid $60 for the division, too. So you should just get everything they ever make for it now. You yeah, know? yeah. And and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I understand it in in a live service game like that. I totally get the season pass model in Destiny. Um, I totally get the season pass model in, um, you know, uh, the division. I've actually I've bought the season passes for Destiny because I like the game and I like to support it. Um, especially now that, you know, I know that that money's not going <laughs> to activate it, but there are some games that undoubtedly just don't, they, they just don't have legs in that same way. And the idea that they think th- the presumptuousness of it to assume that you are making something that can compete with all these other experiences that deserve this. I, I don't know. I, I, I just don't feel good about it. I just feel like it cheapens things. Yeah. I, I think that the, the potentially exciting thing is what we've been talking about so long on this show, which is I think $70 is going to be the peak price point now. I think that's pretty obvious. It might, maybe it'll go even a little higher. But like I said, we haven't had really dispar- uh, uh, disparity in pricing for AAA games since the cartridge era. And that had nothing to do with the games, but the, the chipsets inside them um, and the limited amount that they can manufacture of all these games and how much more expensive they were to make. Gaming, even at $70 for a AAA game, is still cheaper than ever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. At $60, it's way cheaper than ever. At $70, it remains cheaper than ever. It basically remains static and inflationary money. So I just feel like we got to take these things on a, on, a, on a case-by-case basis. If you're a free-to-play game like Fortnite, I'm not so offended by you having all sorts of microtransactions and, and all these things that extract money from the player base. I guess it is a little different if you go in and buy a game, but then you have to kind of judge things on a case-by-case basis there too because, like I said, games like Borderlands 3 and, and The Division 2 have really robust post-release content that should be paid for. If yeah. anything, I, I think you can argue that maybe the content's too expensive on a case by case basis. For instance, you're getting like 50 hours with Borderlands 3 for 60 bucks, and then you're paying like $10 for a few hours over and over again if you don't have the season pass for Borderlands 3 content. So I understand that argument a little bit more. But this, I know people don't like this gamer entitlement thing. I actually coined that term, so I'm not very, very proud of that. I coined that at IGN. And uh, I'm not proud that, that that that's thrown around so much now, but it is a sense of entitlement to think that like you just get a static product and then you just get it forever and no one's stopping you from playing the core content, right? Like no one's stopping you from buying. The Division 2 was $3 for a while, as people will recall, $3. Oh, yeah, totally. And you can, and you can play the entire thing if you want for three bucks. And, but if you want to have these options, see, this is where I think that it comes back to like having a little bit of wherewithal as a consumer and say like, well, we won't contribute. Like Mr. Worry is saying here in his letter, it, he's obviously Canadian. He's saying if gaming goes up to $100 Canadian for, for games, then then he's basically out. Well, well, 
do that. That if if people do that on mass and are so offended by paying seventy dollars instead of sixty dollars for a game, even though we've been paying sixty dollars for fifteen years for video games, as the the value of all money has eroded, then I think that like maybe the problem isn't the game. You know, maybe the problem is your own kind of interpretation of what you should be paying. It's like when I was a kid in the '90s and I would go to like a, a matinee on the weekends, it would cost like six bucks. You're not getting into a movie for fucking six dollars anymore anywhere. Yeah. You know, and and I just you have to kind of accept that that's the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. It, it's just we don't the, the value of the dollar erodes. It's just the way it is. One, so one thing I will say is that if you got a game that has like cosmetic items that make everything look like a wacky, zany, like bullshit land, uh, I, I would like the option to toggle that stuff from my perspective, at least turn that shit off because it, sure, <laughs> because my God, <laughs> like some games out there look like just fan art. You know what I mean? Like, it's just totally. like this, this multicolored mess because obviously every new skin has to be more eye-catching and more uh, standout-ish than the last in order for them to sell them, which is, I, I think, leads to the, the erosion of something that I care about very deeply and I know that a lot of people ne- don't, don't necessarily give a shit about, which is, like, just the visual style of each individual title and how unique each individual title looks. And now, you know, everything's just Fortnite 2. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. We, we were making fun of games a week or two ago about there's like a couple of new games that were announced that are just indistinguishable yeah. from Fortnite. It's totally indistinguishable. Like it, I do this for a living. So does Chris. Like if you put I don't know if Chris is any different than me in this regard, but if you put Fortnite and three other of these other games that look like Fortnite in front of me, I couldn't tell you what any of them are. I probably couldn't tell you which one was Fortnite, mm-hmm. to be honest. Uh, so you're right. I mean, aesthetic quality is and artistic merit is important. So. We'll see how this all plays out. I think now that the domino, the first domino has fallen, we'll see others be able to talk about this. This frees up publishers to talk more freely and at least have other people to point to and say, like, well, they're doing it, too. I think the only thing that I'm a little worried about, Chris, is that if this is actually representative of the top end or not, this is an annualized sports game. And I'm wondering if 2K, when they get around to releasing like the Bioshock game that's being developed at Cloud Chamber, or Mafia 4 or whatever, if they're like, that's 80 bucks. That's what I was then, thinking. Then we're going to have maybe have a bigger conversation. That's that's honestly what I was thinking was going to happen. I was like, well, this is a sports game. It's probably not necessarily the uh, AAA price. I, I, I still honestly like it, it based on the the reaction to how this goes. I, I, I think they, there's a very good chance that things might end up being 70 as a max point. But honestly, I really do think 80 is, is what it's going to be. I might I may very well be wrong. This it's this is going to be an interesting time, especially this also speaks to um, man, it, it really good timing on Microsoft's point to uh, have introduced Game Pass so early because that's going to be even more of a of a lure now. Well, that's what I've been seeing a lot of people say, which I think is really relevant in, my, in the comments on my Twitter or my tweet that I put out about this. People are saying like, well, this makes Game Pass, especially on Xbox, much more appealing and this will make PlayStation now more appealing too. My only concern there is like, well, I don't know that those prices aren't going up either. I, I think this is one of those Netflix-like situations or Amazon situations where you set a bug with someone for like Prime or you set a bug for a Netflix subscription and then they, they just increase the price and you become so comfortable with the service and you want it. Like Netflix, when I got it, was like 10 bucks a month or something like that or not even. Yeah. And it's almost twice that now. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to get rid of Netflix. So you, you got me. I'm a, ca- I'm a captive member of your audience. So... We could see some weird shit play out here, too, but I still would love the I would love the cartridge spirit to come back in the sense of just allowing people to explore more like charging less than $60 for a game has a bad stigma now. 
it's very rare actually that a really great game uh, comes out at a, at a at a triple A a triple A quality like Ratchet and Clank, but is charged forty bucks or fifty bucks or whatever for the game. So I wish that along with this idea of raising prices, that again we explore the lowering of prices as well. But I don't I don't know that that's necessarily realistic. So we'll see how this all shakes out. I'm sure a lot of people will have a lot of trepidation about this moving forward, but I just encourage people to listen. You got to keep a level head. You got to just look at things realistically. We've been paying $60 for so long. You're just acclimated to it. But think about that $60 is not the same as $60 was at the beginning of the PS3 and 360 eras. It, it's 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 just not the same. At yeah. $80 a game, that outstrips inflation and then that adds more profit. And then I can understand people being upset. But this is basically a swap for more money for inflation. And that makes a lot of sense to me. But we'll hear from you. I'm sure you'll have lots to say about this positive or probably negative. So write into us, of course. Angie's list is now Angie. And we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Number three. With the exception of last year's acquisition of Insomniac Games... Sony's roster of first-party studios has remained rather stagnant. In fact, there were eight years in between Sony's acquisition of Sucker Punch in 2011 and Insomniac last year. And in that time, several internal studios, including Guerrilla Cambridge, Zipper Interactive, Big Big, Evolution, and others were all shut down. So you may be pleased to learn that, according to Bloomberg, Sony is actively considering adding to its family yet again. Sony is apparently eyeing a Hong Kong holding company called Layout. I think that's how you say it. L-E-Y-O-U. Maybe Leiu? Leiu? Maybe. A company that has courted other outside investors and buyers in recent years. Sony, though, is apparently motivated to make this deal work. Leiu is valued at over a billion dollars and has five studios under its direction, most notably Digital Extremes, which created and published the long-running and popular free-to-play game Warframe. Liu also owns Splash Damage, the team behind 2011's Brink, and more recently involved in all sorts of Gears of War-related projects, including the recently launched Gears Tactics. Liu also has voting shares with Certain Affinity, which has long worked as a support team for online games, including various Halo and Call of Duty games, as well as 2016's Doom. Perhaps most interestingly, though, it created Athlon Games in 2018 to publish Lord of the Rings video games, including an MMORPG, and also has long-running deals with toymaker Hasbro for Transformers and others. So this is interesting. It looks like Sony is pursuing this actively to make this, these guys part of their, their team, which would bring digital extremes on board. Splash Damage, which really has only worked with Xbox in the last 10 years after Brink. And uh, Certain Affinity, which is really a support team, which Sony could probably use on their own games. So I was reading this and then I was like, oh, Athlon Games. And I went and read about them because I remember us, I think, talking about that here. Athlon Games is, a, is basically has the license to Lord of the Rings at this point. So that might be worth the, that might be worth a billion dollars alone 
if you're if you have the 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 so if Sony basically made Lord of the Rings exclusive PlayStation games uh, with their own teams, what do you think about this possible purchase? This seems not as glamorous as I think some people might have hoped, but this is a way for them to acquire multiple teams at once. Yeah, I I could see it working. I I think they're really eyeing Lord of the Rings more than anything, because I I don't imagine that Brink was very good. Gears Tactics is is actually pretty great, but um, I don't know if they're necessarily looking to make tactics games. Yeah, I, it's an interesting one for sure. The the fact that they, I wonder how the the Hasbro deal fits into this at all, or if that's even something that they care about. It's exciting because yeah, I don't know if they care about it. It's exciting to think about though because obviously Hasbro's licenses have bounced around. There were even like I think. Didn't Platinum do a Transformers game that was published by Activision and shit like that? And and so th- th- these things are bouncing around between people. But as a G.I. Joe fan, it's really exciting for Sony to potentially get Hasbro's licenses because they can make a G.I. Joe game, which would be which would be awesome, especially because G.I. Joe is under a revival right now in 2020 with its new toy line. So there's a lot here, but I think Athlon Games with the Lord of the Rings stuff is probably really uh, attractive to them. And I got to say, we were t- remember when we talked about Saber Interactive getting bought by THQ Nordic and how... Saber Interactive doesn't really make their own games. They're really a port and support studio and that that would go a long way to allowing THQ Nordic to unleash their studios and have these guys basically just handle the technical stuff like they have a passion for that shit. It's it's kind of a similar thing here with certain affinity where I feel like Blue Point Games would be the ideal studio for this, but maybe they don't want to be purchased. Certain affinity can kind of fill this role. Certain affinity has worked on a lot of big games. They just don't get a lot of shine for that because they're working in support roles and splash damage. As I've said in the past, Splash Damage is like one of my favorite studio names. Brink was a Bethesda published game that people didn't really like, but they kind of went into the support role as well with the Gears franchise, especially. So they're kind of freed up because the, the you know, Gears is kind of under the tutelage, as we know, um, of the coalition and and all this. And Digital Extremes is a pretty attractive property for them, too, because Warframe is pretty big still. It, 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 people still really love that game. Warframe was, as I recall, Warframe was a PS4 launch game. So they, they've been on the platform forever. So I would uh, wouldn't be surprised. Apparently, they, apparently uh, the Liu guys in Hong Kong are like really motivated. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this gets locked up. Uh, if we find out in a few weeks, yeah, that it's going to happen. We'll see. It's not I don't think that this is a one for one. Replacing of some of these studios that have been closed, especially Zipper, Gorilla Cambridge, Liverpool some really big storied studios, but this will do a nice job of filling in some cracks and crevices for them. And uh, maybe not the most glamorous purchase like Insomniac was, but we will find out. I still think they need to go after Bluepoint. I still think that that's a studio that belongs with Sony uh, more than m- many others, but we'll yeah. find out. But but on number four, let's talk more about acquisitions and new studios. Chinese mega company Tencent, which we talk about every fucking week on this show, is continuing its expansion into Western gaming markets, but this time it's not through acquisition. Instead, Tencent is opening a brand new AAA studio in California that will be working on a AAA next-gen project. The nature of this project is unknown, according to a report on Games Industry International, though Steve Martin, once a big shot at Rockstar, not that Steve Martin, Steve Martin in games, once a big shot at Rockstar will be leading the studio. Martin most recently worked on both Grand Theft Auto V and Red Dead Redemption 2. I believe he was a producer on both of them. The studio has also begun hiring in earnest, as the report notes that other Rockstar vets, as well as folks from Respawn Entertainment, Insomniac Games, and others have already joined the team, one that is aiming for a so-called, quote, crunch-free, stress-free work environment, end quote. I don't like this whole emphasis on crunch-free, stress-free stuff. Why would you want to work, like, what kind of game is made in a stress-free environment? 
I've never been free of stress in my work career ever. I, I just don't understand what this means. Uh, I, I, it seems like it's like this really PR marketing bullshit. Yeah. That's going to suggest that you're going to make a game in three years and, and 40 hour weeks or whatever. It's not going to happen. But nonetheless, uh, what do you think about Tencent making their own studio, no longer acquiring others, but actually making their own American team? Yeah, I mean, I, I would prefer that. I would just do that then. That's that's fine. I, I do think it's it's creepy. The, the term crunch free, stress free work environment coming from Tencent is really <laughs> creepy. It's like really there's something really Bioshocky uh, <laughs> about that. And I can't help but feel that way whenever Tencent is involved. But yeah, I would prefer definitely that they just open up a studio and stop aping others. Uh, you know, that that's more fair. I think I'm I'm more open to that. Yeah, I think that it's a little less sinister. You're right, because they're saying work, you know, stress-free environment is they throw you in like one of the communist Chinese uh, concentration camps or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm with you there. I'm sick of talking about Tencent, but we only keep talking about them because they keep expanding. And remember that this is a company that employs something like 50,000 people. I mean, this is this is a massive company. And, and some people look at it as a, a profoundly dangerous company as well. Uh, but nonetheless, they are expanding they've they've seemed to approach some rock star talent and i don't mean that in the little r i mean the big r rock star talent and so we will see what they come up with i assume we won't see their game until 2024 or so uh well if it's a stress-free crunch-free environment we will probably never see their game actually but yeah uh we'll, we'll find out number five website bloomberg has reported that the long rumored harry potter rpg is real and that it's aiming for a 2020 2021 release on playstation 5 and other next-gen hardware Interestingly, the game is being developed by Avalanche Software, not to be confused with Avalanche Studios, the guys behind Just Cause and other franchises, and is unsurprisingly being published by Warner Brothers Interactive Media, which, as we noted in recent weeks, is being shopped around itself to interested entities such as Electronic Arts and Activision. Avalanche Software is located in Utah and was actually part of Disney's internal set of teams from 2005 until, until 2017, at which point it was acquired by WB as an internal studio. The team is best known for its Disney Infinity franchise, as well as its 3D platform series from PS2 called TAC. Remember those games? And a bunch of other licensed products, mostly on behalf of Disney and Nickelodeon. This would be by far the biggest game it has ever attempted to make. Bloomberg has little else of substance to add to the existence of the game, though. It does note that with parent company AT&T shopping WB Interactive to suitors, an expensive project like this does risk being canceled before coming to light, similar to what happened to the likes of Star Wars 1313 when Disney acquired Lucas. Also notable is the recent controversy surrounding J.K. Rowling, a vocal feminist who has repeatedly made made statements that some deem transphobic or trans exclusive. This is interesting. I, we all knew this game was being developed, but Avalanche Software seems like a weird choice for this game. It seems like they were probably purchased with the idea of making this game. But I was looking at all the games they've made since the 90s, and they really have not made anything on the level of a Harry Potter role-playing game, a triple-A licensed... They make licensed games, but like, like a triple-A really big game. I'm not so confident that they have what it takes, but what do, what do you think about this rumor and kind of the confirmation that this game is indeed real for a 2021 PS5 release? This, uh, this game's getting canceled, dude. This game is... Uh, like, I have no doubt about it. Like, I... I not even necessarily because of J.K. Rowling being like uh, controversial. I, I just think it's like it's simply way too late for this. And coming from, like you said, Avalanche Software, that doesn't really deem a lot of confidence. The fact that the fact that there's even a chance that it could get canceled leads me to believe that it absolutely will be. 
because I think whoever is acquiring it will probably look at it and be like, ah, either either this is not coming out in its current state or this is uh, being repurposed into something else because uh, we haven't seen anything about this thing and we've known about it for how long? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this game has been rumored for years and presumably so Disney jettisoned Avalanche in 2017. So you have to presume this game has been in development for at least three years, probably longer. There was footage of it leaked, as you might recall, in 2018 when people started getting kind of uh, the first feel of, of what this game could be. When I saw Avalanche was making, I was like, oh, Avalanche is, ma-, you know, like <laughs> the real Avalanche. And I was like, oh, OK, that's interesting. Like they're, they're capable of doing it. They've made big games before many big games before. So but it's not that avalanche. And um, yeah, the the Bloomberg article does note that games this late in development, especially licensed games, do have a a tendency to get canceled. And that happened to Star Wars 1313. I mean, Star Wars 1313 was well on its way when it got canceled. It was it was pretty close to being done. Um, And I know people that worked on that game um, and they talk about it really painfully. But as far as J.K. Rowling, what do you make of her I don't know. I don't want to get too deep into this, but I feel like what she's saying and her tweets and in her letter that she wrote and people can go read about it. I'm not going to get too too far into it. I don't feel like it's really being accurately represented. Like, I don't think it's as controversial as people are making it out to be. She's basically just speaking at, at saying, like, I support trans people, but there are also women and they're not nece- trans women and women are not necessarily or don't necessarily share all of the same experiences. And let's not erase women in this pursuit of inclusivity. We can be both. We can both be both inclusive and then recognize the the genders as they are and what they go through and all that kind of stuff. And when I read that stuff from because I saw the controversy about it, Chris, and then I went and I was like, oh, what the fuck did she say? Like, you know, what did J.K. Rowling say? And I went and read it and I'm like, this doesn't seem that crazy to me. Like, yeah. like in terms of it's me, it might be a controversial opinion. It might not be an opinion you or I agree with in its entirety, but it seemed pretty tame compared to the way people were reacting to it. Do you agree or or do you disagree? I'll be real. I haven't checked out like exactly what she said, but uh, based on how you're describing it, I, I don't imagine that that's uh, all that complicated or, or, or that it, it doesn't seem that controversial to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think. Uh, does she have like a history of like saying crazy shit? Yeah, she has a history of saying a lot of stuff about transgender people. And I understand it's a um, it's a sensitive topic. It's a a topic we need to be more progressive on in many ways, I think. And I've said for a long time, I feel like transgender people now that like gay marriage is legalized in the United States and all this through the Supreme Court several years ago. I always felt like trans rights was going to be the next civil rights movement. And I get it because her whole thing started where it was like uh, there was a tweet from some entity where they were saying, like, you know, people who menstruate. That's like what they said, their term, people who menstruate. And he's like, and she was like, damn, I think there's a word for people who menstruate. That, that's what she said. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I'm like, yeah, I, I understand what you mean. I mean, I, I, I get it. Like, you don't want to dehumanize or take away the agency of a woman because someone wants to identify as a woman. It doesn't mean that you can't identify as a woman. It doesn't mean that we don't treat you societally as a woman. Mm-hmm, so it's a yeah. really sticky. It's like a minefield. I feel like I'm even treading on dangerous ground just talking about it. But in in looking at what J.K. Rowling said, I was like, I don't know, especially when she she wrote this letter kind of clarifying her stance. I'm like, I don't find this very offensive. And I, I, I consider myself maybe people will disagree. I don't know why you would, but I consider myself an ally of trans people. I, I think that trans people have every right to live their lives to their specifications. Yeah. But I just think I don't want to get we're not a political podcast. I don't want to get too far down that. But I think but I do think the controversy with J.K. Rowling is going to play a part in this game having some difficulty 
And it's funny because she's writing all these new books now. Um, not like the Wizarding World of Harry Potter or whatever it is, but or not the Wizarding World, but the um, uh, Fantastic Beasts. And then the stuff she does under that pen name and other she's doing like this new children's anthology or whatever. Uh-huh. And people at the publishing house were actually complaining about having to work on her books. And the publishing house made a move which you do not see very often, which is which they basically said too bad. Like you can disagree with her, but you're not you're, we're not having any like if you don't want to work on our books, you're fired. And so there are people that are putting their foot down. And I think J.K. Rowling is uncancelable. She's a billionaire. Yeah, I think that's part. Of, I think that's yeah. part of the reason why she's comfortable saying this. Yeah, stuff, no, for sure. I think every, anybody working on a, a J.K. Rowling, a J.K. Rowling property has more to lose by by dropping that by dropping that deal than J.K. Rowling has. You know, J.K. Rowling doesn't need anything. Like she's she's fine, but like if you had the opportunity to work on a J.K. Rowling property, you're gonna you're probably gonna want to take it. Definitely, and and so that was, it was I, I forget the the name of the publishing house, but I, I thought that was really interesting. And then the Bloomberg article noted, and I don't know, my, I'm not a Harry Potter fan, so I don't know much about her, but she's apparently very hands on with like everything that is Harry Potter related. And apparently, she has something to do with the game. She's not like in in the, involved in the day to day, but she is helping produce this game in some way. Hmm. And so people at Avalanche are now complaining about her comments and all of this. And I'm like, this, this seems like it doesn't, it's not going to end up very well, but uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I'd love for it to come out. I'd love for something to capture my imagination with Harry Potter, because I did read the first three books through Prisoner of Azkaban when I was younger and I liked them. I just didn't read the rest of them. I think I only saw like the first movie. So I would like for something to capture my imagination. It's very similar to how the South Park games captured my imagination and made me go back and watch a lot of South Park that I missed and ended up really loving it. I mean, they're very different licenses, but th- those those two role playing games from Obsidian and Ubisoft really thrust me into wanting to like I loved those games. And I was like, wow, South Park is so great. So it would be cool to have something like Harry Potter related that would capture me in that same way. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Harry Potter, a Harry Potter game, though, runs the risk of having like the Avengers issue where like we're all so familiar with what Harry Potter is, especially from like the movies and like how these characters are supposed to look. Uh, that I wonder if like they could I, I wonder if they have the licenses to use like Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint and, and all those actors and and uh, uh, what's what's Snape again? Oh, my God. Alan Rickman. Oh, Alan Rickman. This Hello, Alan Rickman. This is Alan Rickman. <laughs> it's just uh, <laughs> I, I wonder. I, I don't know. I feel like it, it could end up being like a really uncanny valley kind of experience, like even if it is made pretty well. I'm I'm curious how this all plays out. It's just it's complicated. There's like four dimensions to this. Yeah. Uh, with with the J.K. Rowling, let's call it the J.K. Rowling um, exponent. And so, yeah, people can re- write in. And let me know. I mean, am I off base on J.K. Rowling? Am I am, is she more sinister than I I realize? Am I misreading things or what? I mean, let me know. I mean, it seems from what I'm reading online outside of like the Twitterati, as it were, no one's offended by this. Yeah. In the in the slightest, but. I'm not in the Harry Potter fandom, and I know that that's a really substantial fandom. So, yeah, hit, hit us up and let us know what you think. Number six, Sony has revealed the free PlayStation Plus games for the month of July. And by the time you hear this, they may already be available to you to download free of charge. So long as your PS Plus account is active, the specific dates are July 7th through August 3rd. Remember, as always, to add these games to your download list, even if you don't intend on playing them now, as you'll have the option to play them later if you change your mind. For starters, to prepare for the return of the NBA season and the subsequent start of the NBA season for 2020 and 2021, NBA 2K20 will be free. Additionally, Crystal Dynamics Rise of the Tomb Raider, which first came to Xbox 360 and Xbox One in 2015 and later came to PS4 in 2016, will also be free. 
And finally, the 2019 PS4 exclusive Erica, described as a, quote, feature-length cinematic experience, end quote, will also be free, a third game to celebrate 10 full years of PlayStation Plus. I need to play that Erica game. This is a good excuse because it's supposed to be pretty good. PS Plus launched back in June of 2010, and it was extremely controversial and divisive for several years before truly finding its footing. If you're curious, Wipeout HD on PS3 was the very first free game offered via PS Plus, a Chris game. The most popular free game, uh, the most popular free games rather in 10 years are in order. So this is by download. Call of Duty Modern Warfare Remastered, Sonic Forces, Shadow of the Colossus, Call of Duty Black Ops 3, and Destiny. I put Destiny 3, but it's Destiny 2. Destiny 3 doesn't exist. And the most played multiplayer games relevant since PS Plus is required to play online with PS4 are in order Grand Theft Auto 5, Rainbow Six Siege, Call of Duty Black Ops 3, Destiny, and Call of Duty Black Ops 4. I'll never forget how controversial PlayStation Plus was. I was a very early and vocal uh, supporter of this of it. I used to write about it on IGN all the time. Yeah. I used to get shit on constantly for liking PS Plus, but it really <laughs> did. They really did figure out a way to make it work, and it, it I think it's great. Yeah, it's totally yeah. worth it. I, that was that was an interesting time. I remember that, too, because I remember uh, constantly. I remember constantly. Um, what is it? There would be because I was playing on 360 at the time and everybody I had some friends on PlayStation. 2, it's like, I can't believe you pay for for uh, good servers. And <laughs> and like, all right. it's like, yeah, of, of course. What do you mean? And then when that happened, uh, I remember uh, being real snide. <laughs> yeah, like, ah. you, had, you earned it. You earned it, man, because when because if folks don't remember or just unaware Online on PS3 was free. You didn't have to pay on for to play online uh, on PS3. But when you when PS4 came around, they made P- it, the online functionality of PS4 locked behind PlayStation Plus, and that really changed everyone's tune on on that. That seemed totally reasonable to me, especially because they didn't increase the price. I think they've only increased the price of Plus like once since it launched, and you could often find it really severely discounted if you buy like a year at a time during a flash sale. Yeah, you can get it for like thirty bucks. So. I just think based on the free games alone, nonetheless, the online functionality, I think it's been really great. But originally it started as like a you get like early access to games and like sales and all that. And they still do that. But now it's really become much more about the free games and the online functionality. So happy 10 years to PlayStation Plus. I can't believe it's 10 years old. That makes me feel old as shit. I feel like I was just writing about it. (laughs) All right. Number and by the way, that's where we get our name of our show, by the way. Yeah. Sacred Symbols Plus. Number seven, Media Molecule's long in development game Dreams is getting its promised PSVR support, and it's happening rather soon. You can download the patch that will activate PSVR functionality on July 22nd. Word comes by way of a PlayStation blog post from Media Molecule itself, which notes that the update will be free for all owners of the game and that players will be able to create PSVR projects with the seamless set of tools available for your more standard variety of games, though there will be PSVR centric tool sets and tutorials to help guide you. Media Molecule has also wisely opted to include some baked-in PSVR experiences for players to mess around with, so everyone can see what the best of the best are capable of within Dreams. Dreams launched on PlayStation 4 in its final form on February 14th earlier this year, but was released into a paid beta in 2019 and was in development for the better part of eight years before launch. The game hasn't sold well, but does have a hardcore fan base of creators and players, and it seems Media Molecule intends on continuing support for the project well into the future. Jacob Childers wrote into us, Chris, on uh, Patreon, he says, what's up, you filthy animals? Dreams is coming to PlayStation VR. Do you think this is the shot in the arm the game needs? Thanks, guys. What do you say, Chris? Uh, no. <laughs> no. PSVR is so... Uh, it's, such, it's such a niche in and of itself. This isn't going to amount to much of a shot in the arm for anybody. I think it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing for people to play around with who are already there. But I, I, I don't know if it's going to... It's not a shot in the arm. It's more like a... 
it, 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 I feel like it's more like um like putting the last little Lego piece on your on your little uh on your on your Lego island thing where it's like ah oh, I got it's it's finished I got the flag up on the castle you know it's finished now right you know it's got full functionality but that, I, I don't know if it's a shot in the arm yeah I don't know either I mean it, it you're right it's so niche that it can't possibly be a shot in the arm I think the problem with PSVR is the hardcore audience that's already most engaged with PlayStation and most engaged with Dreams or potentially so has PSVR. And so you're not going to find new audiences. I don't I don't think that that's going to happen. I think I still think Dreams was a bad idea. I think it's let me let me back up. I think Dreams was a an ill-conceived idea. I think it's a nice product and people like it. But it it I, I just said it from the beginning. It's this this game has no chance. And I don't think these little incremental things are going to save it. I think that the biggest I got to say, Chris, like because we, we talked about it, it's coming to PC. It's obviously going to come to PS5. But I think the best way to save dreams and to maybe save Media Molecule long term is to get this thing on everything. And maybe this would be a good foray for Sony to start investigating publishing its games on Nintendo and Microsoft's platforms. Yeah. If you just do it with dreams, like I, I, I actually really love that idea. And maybe that would give dreams the requisite player base it needs to thrive because I haven't turned it on in a long time, but there are not many people playing it. And they have that thing at the splash screen where it says how many people are online. And I remember like a week after it came out, it was like 3000. And I'm like, dude, that's horrible. You know, that's hard. There are 110 million PS4s, you know, 115 million. You can't be having 3000 people playing your game at one time when it just came out. If you're a triple A console exclusive studio, you know, I just I, I feel bad for them. By the way, do you know the name Abby Hep, Hep or whatever? Abby Abby Heppy, is that her name? Abby Heppy. Yeah, let me let me look to make sure I'm getting this name right. She's the community manager of Media Molecule. I'm only asking because she was at one time, I remember, because I met her at Gamescom in Germany once. She's the voice of of Titanfall. And she was the community manager of Titanfall. What does that what mean? The, the, vo- her- the voice of the voice of Titan? What does that you mean? You know, like how it's like, you know, T minus whatever for Titanfall. Uh that the, oh, the, the really? woman's voice. Yeah. Media What molecule. the hell? Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, Abby Happy, H-E-P-P-E-E. Yeah, I think I met yeah, I think I met her. Yeah. X Respawn. Um, and I remember having a really awkward conversation with her at Gamescom. So I was hanging out with um with uh Shaban Reddy and others from Media Molecule after a night or after a day at Gamescom. We were having drinks at a bar. And um I had just met Abby, it was the first time. She's very nice. But I remember saying something. Um, she was like, Oh, did you see Titanfall? Because that they were showing it there. And I'm like, Yeah, I saw it, but I didn't get a chance to play it. I cover PlayStation for IGN. And she's like, and she said, so. And I, that's what I that's what I remember about my interaction with her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. But yeah, she's uh, as I recall, she she is the um, the voice of Titanfall, whatever that means. And yeah, worked at uh, Respawn. So she looks like she lives in. Uh, I'm looking at her Twitter feed now. It looks like she lives in Guilford, which is where Media Molecule is. So it looks like maybe the seeds were set at that at that inauspicious meeting where yeah. she ended up working for them. But I, I'll never I'll never forget that about her because I was kind of embarrassed. I was like, well, you asked me a question and I'm answering you like I'm here to see games and I, I cover PlayStation. I'm not going to go see fucking Titanfall. You yeah, know? I don't have time for that. But nonetheless, we're weird. The things we remember that was uh, six years ago, almost to the month. Number eight, Sony has revealed a slew of new indie games on the PlayStation blog, perhaps trying to reignite its relationships with independent developers that it once bragged about regularly, but not in recent years. The post was written by Shuhei Yoshida, who used to be in charge of Sony's first party studios and has more recently been placed in charge of Sony's lackluster, but once very proud and robust indie initiatives. 
In addition to confirming that a new indie game will join PlayStation Now's catalog each and every month moving forward, Yoshida also revealed that the following 10 games are coming to either PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, or both. Real-time action game Worms Rumble is coming to both PS4 and PS5 later in 2020. Co-op adventure RPG Haven is coming to PS4 and PS5 at an unknown point in the future. Action puzzler Cardo is coming to PS4 at an unknown point in the future. Fast-moving platform Recompile is coming to PS5 likely in 2020. Narrative adventure game Where the Heart Is is coming to PS4 late in 2020. That seems to be the one that they're pushing the hardest. Puzzler Maquette is coming to PlayStation platforms at an unknown point in time, though it doesn't make clear which platforms. Action platformer Fist Forged in Shadow Torch is coming to PlayStation 4 at an unknown point in the future. I like that name. Physics-based game Heavenly Bodies is coming to both PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 at an unknown point in the future. And mysterious adventure game Creeks is coming to PS4 later this summer. So if anyone wants to go to PlayStation blog, uh, blog.us.playstation.com, there's trailers and write-ups for each one of these, like extensive coverage of all these games. So they're not just throwaway announcements. These are games Sony's actually getting behind with the help of Shuhei Yoshida. So go check those out. We got a lot of letters about this, actually. Liam Jackson wrote into us on Patreon and says, hello, CNC. PlayStation has just announced their new indie highlight initiative, and I think it is an excellent way to market games that would otherwise go unnoticed. Something interesting in the blog post from PlayStation themselves is the acknowledgement of how stale and hampered AAA games are becoming on the corporate side of things. What are your thoughts on a major AAA developer outright stating that this is the case? And do you think pressure like from Sony themselves could drive more creativity in major studios if it is continued in such an explicit manner? Chris, I was really pleased to see this from Shuhei Yoshida. I know that this was his charge when she was kind of removed from uh, being the head of first party and in, in, uh, Herman Holst from Gorilla took over. He has a really good connection with video game developers. I've watched him in action for many years in person, and I've known him. I've had dinner with him and talked to him a lot and had a lot of candid conversations, and he really knows games. I mean, this is the guy that produced and and helped create a lot of big PlayStation games early on, including everyone's beloved The Legend of Jagoon. Yeah. So how do, how do you feel about them saying themselves? And he does say, and I'll bring up the quote. I'll read it to you in a moment. But um, he does bring up that they are that things are getting stale and tired and, and a little dangerous in that space and in the AAA space and that they need to kind of look inward. And and I think this is a nice way for them to kind of showcase uh, big games. And he says in this quote, the indie community is increasingly important for the future of the video game industry as AAA game development has grown so financially demanding that big companies are finding it harder to take risks to invest in new concepts that may or may not work. We trust indie developers with strong vision will continue to bring ideas that have never been tried before, creating whole new genres of games and advancing the art and meaning of video games. PlayStation has always embraced games with completely new concepts like Parappa the Rapper, Katamari Damacy, Little Big Planet, and Journey. And we look forward to seeing what surprising new ideas come next. So how do you feel about that separation and about Sony kind of acknowledging it themselves? I think it's good. I think it's good. I, like it, I feel like I feel like I I used to get a lot of heat for saying this, but like I'm, so it's it's kind of gratifying to hear it come from like just straight up Shuhei Yoshida. It's a nice uh, it's a nice feeling. But yeah, I mean, I think he's right. Like I, I think generally speaking, the more you have writing on your project and the more eyes you have on you, the less risks you're willing to take and and the more safe you're willing to to be to ensure that you really stick the landing. And I feel like indie developers just don't have that. Indie developers make whatever the hell they want. It, it, there's this great. Um, there's this insane looking game, uh, Man Eater, where you, where you play as like a sh- a shark. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, that came out recently. I want to play yeah. that so bad because it's just it's supposed such to be great. Because it's just such an insane, <laughs> just the, like no big studio is gonna make that. It really is just like a bunch of people in an office or, or like in an apartment, probably being like, "Hey, you know what would be wild?" <laughs> and then they just did it. 
Like, I love that. And I, I, I like that Shuhei is really kind of shining a light on that. And I think uh, I think he's totally right. Yeah, I think he's right, too. And I think that knowing Sony and how they work so well internally, they clear everything they say through so many layers of PR and stuff. This was a thing that they wanted to say. This was a message that they wanted to put out there. This wasn't something that Shuhei Yoshida just went rogue and posted on the PlayStation blog. So I find that interesting, too, because they're some of the biggest investors in AAA games. They, you mm-hmm. know, The Last of Us Part Two is a $150 million game. It's a ridiculously expensive game to make. And they're saying that that's a problem. And so I, I do I do appreciate the candor. And Sony had such a proud heritage with indies, you know, PlayStation Hearts indies and all that kind of stuff. And they had a big presence at GDC and they were getting everyone on Vita and and all that kind of stuff. And they kind of lost the plot. And as I've said on the show in the past, I've heard from I know so many indie game devs and I've heard from a lot of them, including big. I won't say anyone in particular, but big names game, you know, de- developers you would know that made games you would we would talk about and, and understand and have played. And they were like, Sony doesn't really pay attention to us anymore. We, they don't really give a shit about us anymore. And this seems like maybe it will ameliorate that problem a little bit. So I will look forward to seeing how this all plays out. Anu Sakani wrote into us and said, hello, hello, C-squared. The PlayStation Indies initiative was just announced today via the PlayStation blog by Shuhei Yoshida. And while it seems like a noble project, I can't help but think back to the 2012 and 2013 days when PS Hearts Indies was plastered all over PS4 marketing, only for it to seemingly die out midway through the generation with Nintendo capturing indie devs' hearts with the Switch and Sony neglecting its indie partners. Do you think we're looking at a repeat of this last generation or will this project have longer legs? As always, keep up the great work. You guys made my days in quarantine infinitely more enjoyable. Uh, Thank you, Anu, for your letter. Chris, do you think that they'll stick this time? Because he is right. They did have this. They talked a big game, Sony, for a long time, and they actually had a lot of events and stuff. This is where I discovered games like Mercenary Kings and all that stuff, which was awesome. And uh, then they just stopped and they stopped paying attention. I I just don't think they were seeing the returns that they were hoping that they were going to see. It's important to remember that Sony had a thing called um, uh, Pub Fund where they would actually fund games for people. So this is like where Guacamelee came from and some other games. Yeah. And then they would get paid back. It was like a loan, an interest for you alone for an exchange for the game and exclusivity for a period of time. And I think they just weren't seeing the returns they wanted to see on that. So it seems like they're not necessarily financially invested in these games. They're just trying to showcase them. And so from my point of view, it seems like it has the ability to last infinitely longer because they don't have to worry about the bottom line. They're just trying to get people's eyes on these. But what do you think? Yeah, I I agree too, but I I also think it has longer legs just because Shuhei is so directly involved. Um, I don't think that they would be so quick to just sort of oust him from his current from his previous position, put him in a new position, and then kind of make that position irrelevant. I I think that in and of itself is is a pretty good indication that it's it's possibly something that will uh, stay for at least a decent amount of time. Previously, like the the, the P- PS Heart Indies thing was was. Even back then when I saw it and like I had so little understanding of like PlayStation as an ecosystem or like the business side of Sony, even back then I, I kind of knew that that was just kind of PR, just a horse shit because it just felt that way too. It felt like it felt very pandering and it felt very like, oh, you know, look, at, we're here. We're here. We're here. We hear you. But it, it didn't really get that across at all um, outside of just telling people that it was true. Uh, this feels a lot more different and the, the candidness, the candidness by which this is sort of, uh, you know, coming out into the public consciousness, uh, I feel like bodes pretty well. Well, I think you make a really valid and interesting point, too, in regards to Shuhei, because I can't I don't know the internal workings of what happens here. And, and corporate shit is always obfuscated. Like you never really know like what's happening for what reason. But it's pretty clear Shuhei Yoshida was demoted. I don't know 
for what reason that happened. Uh, I don't know if it's because of the decentralized nature of getting things out of Japan and bringing them to the States, although Herman Hulse works out of Europe, so I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Jim Ryan's also European. So I don't know exactly what was going on there. It's also interesting because he seemed to have greenlit some pretty awesome first party games like The Last of Us Part Two and Uncharted 4 and Horizon and Days Gone and whatever the case might be. So I feel like Shuhei Yoshida, his gravitas is going to make or break this because he can use his name. He's like a cult hero, like a cult figure in PlayStation fandom. And so I think it's his involvement is one thing, but his active involvement and putting his face on it and trying to be as active as possible is another thing. And so I think it's really going to hinge on him because he really does have an eye for this stuff. He really I'm telling you, I've spoken to so many people and gone to dinner with so many people in the industry. And there are people that are working in games that don't know fucking anything like straight up, don't know anything. And Shuhei Yoshida knows games inside and out, north, south, left, right, right? Like he knows them. And it, having someone like him go into your indie studio and, and, and whatever country and walk in and try to get you on PlayStation is going to be a really powerful tool. And so maybe it was a pretty shrewd move to promote Herman Holst, remove him from Gorilla, although we don't really know how that's going to work for Gorilla now because he's not there anymore, but then have Shuhei Yoshida uh, involved with getting these indie games. So I think you can hit it from both sides because because Herman Holst is is a really great mind in games, too. So they have at the very least, we know they have some some pretty good people working on some pretty good projects. Yeah. Rahul wrote into us and said, hey, CNC, long time, first time. PlayStation has announced this week the indie initiative led by Shuhei Yoshida and their goals for highlighting and promoting quality indie games that would otherwise get buried in a highly saturated and competitive market. Do you guys think this is a good first step for game curation that Colin especially has long advocated for as a great way to provide much needed visibility to hidden gems in a sea of mediocrity? So what do you think about this in terms of curation, Chris? Do you think that do you think we can read into these PlayStation blog games being elevated there with posts and, and trailers that they'll then spotlight them on the store? It's kind of what we were talking about on the last episode where people were saying, like, should there be different verticals where you just know exactly what you're looking for? Will it allow people to find these games Better, do you think that there's some sort of backdoor into into that initiative here? I I, I don't. I don't think so. I I, I think re-establishing the way the the layout of the store and just sort of making that kind of a tweak is a little bit in the software realm. And if there's anything that I've learned uh, being a part of this ecosystem for a while, it's that software isn't necessarily the strong suit of of uh of of sony and i don't imagine that they would there would be a revision of the store that would allow these to have a stronger placement in the store than they otherwise would uh, on other platforms or even in, in in an ideal uh platform i think this is still going to be something that's relatively off-site and something that they're going to pr- probably try to highlight via social media maybe maybe you'll see them like given like a slot in like the you know the tiles on the p on the PlayStation Store, but I, I don't foresee this leading to any real changes in the way that the store is laid out or any any real uh, change in the way that they're pushed on the network itself. Uh, I would like that to be the case. I just I just I very much doubt it. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, if they can keep these games staggered from each other, most of them don't have release dates yet. I think the first one comes out in August, and if they can keep them apart from each other and really get behind them and promote them. Then it would be cool. It would be totally reasonable, like you said, with one of the tiles on the PlayStation Store to just always have one of those as one of the big indie games that they're trying to get out there. Yeah. I just don't know like what their I don't know what their motivation is because having not seeming I mean, I don't know for sure. Most of these games are already out on other platforms, like on PC and stuff, I think. And or like have been announced for other platforms. 
And so Sony seemingly not having a financial stake in these games, I don't know like what their motivation is to sell them because with PubFund, they were trying to make their money back and, and, and populate their platforms. And that was during PS3 and Vita's heyday too. With this, I, I don't know. It would be cool to see something more concerted on their part. And I think you're right with firmware being necessary to update the store. And they're just not very quick with that. I think we're going to have to wait until PS5 yeah. to see what the store is has in whole. Uh, since, I'm trying to keep my my um, expectations really low for this because I want something so badly to be like Steam. And I just know it's just not going to happen. You know, it would be yeah. nice if it did. But yeah, it's not yeah, it's 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 a real shame, and also just like the PlayStation Four dashboard or or uh, cross media bar, uh, just hasn't really changed much at all, you know. And I think that's probably not necessarily because it. I don't think that's necessarily because they think they had it right the first time. I just genuinely think that they don't really know how to do it without kind of toppling the the house of cards in any real uh, substantial way. I, I really hope that they do something like the Summer of Arcade back on 360 in the in like the uh the late 2000s because that was a great way to highlight indie games and 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 big indie projects uh spacing them out appropriately and then giving them their own time to shine that would be the ideal way to go about it but i don't know we'll see yeah give them give them room to breathe you know that's the that's the big thing like give them a chance not all these games are going to be hits but you just give them a chance and 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 go from there i think that they have they have to do that otherwise there's no otherwise they might as well not even bother they might as well just cancel all these games on playstation and not even release them Number nine, in light of recent allegations of sexual harassment, assault and other impropriety rocking the games industry, publisher slash developer Ubisoft is planning to make some changes. Word comes by way of a blog post from Ubisoft's longtime CEO, Yves Gilmour, who, who actually wrote the post to his employees first before making it public to all. I don't know if they intended on making this public, by the way, or the email leaked. So they made it public. But anyway, he says he writes in part, quote, the situations that some of you have experienced or witnessed are absolutely not acceptable. No one should ever feel harassed or disrespected at work. And the types of inappropriate behavior we have recently learned about cannot and will not be tolerated, end quote. As a result, he later continues, quote, I have decided to revise the composition of the editorial department. So those are the leaders, basically, of the different teams. Transform our human resources processes and improve the accountability of all managers on these subjects. We are not looking for a quick fix, but rather a structural shift at Ubisoft that fully aligns with our values, end quote. Guillemont therefore informed his team that he is insult instantu- I'm sorry, instituting someone to head up these changes, that there will be so-called employee listening sessions across all of its studios and entities. They'll institute a global employee survey, continue to investigate all allegations and more. A report from publication Bloomberg notes that some of what Ubisoft itself is dealing with, at least two of its marquee vice presidents, Tommy Francois and Maxime Balland, are both on administrative leave as multiple claims against each man are investigated. So this keeps happening, man. I mean, there's just you would think that it's going to stop at some point, but it just keeps getting worse and worse for all these entities. And I noticed um, I'm not in the Smash Brothers community, obviously, but there was like a big controversy that came out like late last night in in that community. Yeah. In the uh, in the uh, fighting game community um, with some allegations there. And uh, it's it's weird because I think some of these problems are getting pretty serious at Ubisoft specifically because we talked about. The Assassin's Creed guy and how he cheated on his wife, although I don't know that that's really like a crime. It's definitely not a crime. Um, it's wrong, but it's not a crime. But I, I, there was a there was accusations made against one of the community managers, I think, of the Watchdogs brand um, who I had never met or even heard of. And I went to investigate it. And I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if he's guilty or not. We don't know any of that. But I went to investigate it and he blocked me on Twitter. So uh, I was like, well, thanks, because it seems like you might be a complete fucking scumbag. 
Yeah. So maybe, maybe you did me a huge favor there, but there's not too much more to say about this. I just wanted to throw that throw that out there. This actually broke right before this, the the uh, we started recording, so I wanted to include it mm-hmm. in the show. Do you have anything to say about about this? Or no, I, I feel like uh, you know th- this is gonna happen. It's probably gonna keep happening, honestly. So we'll just see how this goes. Yeah, I want to see like where it ends and wh- what what everything looks like after the fallout. Yeah. So we can so we can start to like mend whatever's going on in this industry. Although it's happening in all industries, I just don't. It's happening in comics. It's happening in like young adult novels. It's happening in in movies. So it's not just exclusive to games. And I, I, I it's unfortunate that it's not exclusive to games because that just means that it is uh, victimizing more and more people. Yeah, it's just very pervasive. Yeah, it's it's horrible. I mean, it's horrible. Uh, number ten. Speaking of Ubisoft, there's some good news. The publisher has announced an all new game that kind of sort of leaked in recent days called Hyperscape. Hyperscape is being developed by internal Ubisoft team, Ubisoft Montreal, the team that created Assassin's Creed 2, 3, Unity, Black Flag Origins, and the soon-to-be-released Valhalla, as well as Far Cry 3, 4, Primal, and 5, the Sean White snowboarding games, Watch Dogs 1 and 2, Rainbow Six Siege, For Honor, and others. And interestingly, it's a free-to-play FPS, something new in Ubisoft's arsenal. Unfortunately, it's yet another Battle Royale game, though Hyperscape's twist is that 100 players are split into three teams. The game has an, an intimate connection to the streaming service Twitch, giving viewers a modicum of control over the match they're watching. And it's set to come to current gen platforms, including PlayStation 4, where the game will enjoy cross-platform play and progression. It appears Ubisoft is working on a staggered release for the game, beginning with tech tests and betas, though it may be available in its final form by the end of the summer. There's no word on a PlayStation 5 release for the game, though it should be natively backwards compatible with Sony's new hardware. Ian Savage wrote in and said, hey, sweet, tasty boys. I know both of you have talked about the persistent battle royales and looter shooters are often a race to the bottom as far as quality goes. Uh, But have either of you given Hunt Showdown a play? It has cross play with Xbox One and PS4, an oppressive survival horror atmosphere, a near bloodborne aesthetic and the sharp difficulty curve of a Souls game all wrapped up in an FPS. I'd love to know your guys thoughts on the game. And then he says, keep making and that's it. Did you have you played this Hunt Showdown game? It's supposed to be pretty good. Yeah, like I um, this is Cry Crytek, right? Or, or um, oh my yeah, god, it's like, it's, it's, yeah, I think it is a Crytek game. I'll look for you, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, they um, I I they actually sent me a code like uh, out of nowhere, and I I just never I never installed it because <laughs> I just I wasn't. Uh, this is a very this is one of those games that's like very very cool, and I appreciate it and I support it, but uh, I not only do I not like battle royales uh the bloodborne aesthetic is something that i find totally okay uh i don't like the sharp difficulty curve of souls games and i very highly doubt that it's an fps that has better fps mechanics than the fps's that i already play so it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like ah, I, I don't know if i'm gonna really be that interested in it if i have somebody to to go in with i i imagine i would like it but I, i've heard that it's a pretty it's a pretty demanding game. I've heard that it's a very hardcore game, and I feel like if you're not in it already, you're probably just going to get mopped up and just screwed over. Uh, so, you know, it's a game that I can appreciate from afar. Uh, I don't really have any any intent of, of delving further into it. Yeah, it came to PS4 actually pretty late. It was on PC and Xbox One last year, and then it came to PS4 earlier this year. It is a Crytek game. It's on CryEngine 5. And it's yeah, I've heard good things about it. It's certainly not my type of game. But what do you think about this uh, Ubisoft announcement for Hyperscape? Did you look at the, any of this stuff? It just I just can't believe we're getting another one of these games. Like how many more of these games are we getting? Yeah, it's it's too much, man. I, like, I, I appreciate the twist. I, I, I like the thought of like three big teams coming after each other. But just like, ah, 
this this genre just needs to stop as like a as a genre this game cannot continue like I, i'm sick of it if you want to put like a battle royale in a game that is already a game on itself you have like hey here's a campaign here he, hey here's a multiplayer suite and by the way eh, if you want here's a free to play battle royale game to get you kind of into the sand into the sandbox and into the gameplay styles and maybe maybe if you like it enough maybe you'll give the campaign and multiplayer a try that's that's totally fine but selling a game mode as a as a genre is just so I, I just don't find enough value in that to justify spending the money or the time on it. Yeah, I just I just don't I don't know. I just don't get it. I, I don't know what everyone is trying to do here. And it's especially peculiar for Ubisoft because they haven't been involved in this and they make games as a service and they do it pretty well, like a paid game as a service, whether it's Rainbow Six Siege or whether it's the Division Two and others, as well as their big, robust first pl- or single player games. So I, I just these things are all going to kill each other. And uh, so maybe it's a battle royale of its own, a battle royale, a meta battle royale, as it were. Number 11, some new sales figures of a new a few notable games have been revealed. Website Gamatsu reports that Motion Twins randomly generated Metroidvania game Dead Cells has now surpassed 3 million units sold, while the website reports that Bandai Namco's flight sim Ace Combat 7 Skies Unknown has surpassed 2 million units sold. Dead Cells first came to PS4 in 2018, while Ace Combat 7 launched on the console in early 2019. And website Push Square reports that the well-received action-adventure game A Plague Tale Innocence, which came out in 2019 from a Sobo studio, has surpassed a million units sold. So some nice money being made there. I'm especially interested in Motion Twin because they are an employee-owned studio. Yeah. And so they are all millionaires now, I think, which is uh, great for them. Pretty good. Number 12, some new video game related TV shows are in the works. The biggest of the bunch uh, is a Fallout TV show based on the Bethesda owned open world RPG series that last saw a mainline release in 2015 with Fallout 4, though the online centric Fallout 76 launched since Amazon is developing this show, according to a report on Variety, and it's being headed up by none other than Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, the married couple responsible for bringing Westworld to HBO. Westworld, of course, originally being an IP created in the 70s by Jurassic Park writer Michael Crichton. Jonathan Nolan is the brother of famous filmmaker Christopher Nolan, and Jonathan Nolan was the screenwriter for many of his brother's films, including Memento, the Batman trilogy, and Interstellar, one of my favorite movies of all time. Variety notes that the pair is looking to keep Fallout grounded in the game universe with grit and violence, coupled with its B-movie aesthetic and occasional humor. Naturally, Bethesda Softworks and Bethesda Game Studios will co-produce the project with Fallout creative director Todd Howard taking a central role. The other show is a bit of a surprise, also reported by Variety. Disco Elysium is being developed as a TV series, the RPG from Studio ZAUM. The writer of Disco Elysium, Robert Kurvitz, doesn't seem to be playing a role as Disco Elysium was based upon a story he created surrounding what was originally a tabletop RPG. Disco Elysium is the video game. Uh, Disco Elysium, the video game, rather, came to PC in 2019 and PS4 in 2020. A production company called DJ2 Entertainment is leading up the project. A company headed by Dimitri Johnson, who was once recently, the, or who was most recently rather, the producer of the very well received Sonic the Hedgehog film. Uh, so two different things to talk about here, Chris. A Fallout TV show, uh, which looks like it's going to be very AAA in its approach, and then something unknown regarding Disco Elysium, which is strange, especially because uh, ZAUM, bunch of communists. So it's pretty interesting <laughs> that they are uh, they are creating a Disco Elysium TV show. I wonder if they're going to give all the money away. Probably not. Yeah. So what do you think? What do you think about these projects? Uh, I'm actually not. I don't hate the idea of a Fallout show. I think, uh, especially with these writers attached to it, that's actually kind of exciting because I think I think one of the biggest draws to Fallout isn't necessarily the gameplay or even necessarily like 
you know, the choices that you have. It's it's more like kind of the aesthetic and the tone of what Fallout is. I feel like it could work pretty well as a show. And I, I think these writers might be able to do it. Like, that's that's kind of cool. It's the first time that I saw, like, a show based on a video game that I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I'd mind that, really. Yeah, Jonathan Nolan's no joke. Yeah. So th- that's and Amazon is funding it. So it's it's going to be something very triple A in its approach. I, I assume something like The Witcher on Netflix. Everyone's trying to get involved now. Yeah, I don't hate it. Fallout's kind of this Fallout's got a continuity with the Great War with China in 2077 and the vaults and stuff. But the games are are kind of disconnected, so they could really insert themselves anywhere. It's not quite like The Last of Us that gave me more trepidation because it's really about two characters like Fallout's not really about anyone. It's about something. And that's different. So I think that it's it's a pretty exciting thing. And and they I like I only saw the first season of Westworld, but I was really impressed with it. Yeah, I really liked it a lot. I feel so, like I, I really feel like they could do like some Mandalorian tier stuff with it because it really does feel like a universe that they could explore. And I, I, I'm all about it, honestly. Like, I, I don't hate this at all. And what about Disco Elysium? What do you think about them doing a show based on that? No, that's I, about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's not even going to see the light of day, but. I, yeah, I don't think so either. I, I don't care about Disco Elysium. I, I haven't played it. Uh, maybe if I play it, I'll, I'll like it. But I, I don't imagine. I don't imagine like this. Me liking a show based on a video game is very, very not normal. Uh, it's very, very much the exception to the rule. Uh, so I don't foresee a show based off a game that I haven't played or, or didn't really have any interest in playing being something that I'd be really excited for. So I feel like it's probably safe to assume that it's like, ah, whatever. But yeah, eh, whatever. Yeah, Disco Elysium is supposed to be excellent uh, and I would like to play it, but I just, this is me putting my money where my mouth is. I'm not supporting that team. At least I'm not comfortable doing it now. They had a portrait of Stalin hanging unironically in their office and uh, I'm not about, like, they have every right to do that, uh, but I no, I don't think so. That's going to be a no for me, dog. Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, you might as well. You basically might as well hang up a portrait of Hitler in yeah. your in your office. I mean, I 100 percent think that they're pretty much equivalent. Uh, number 13, this disorganized E3 list summer will continue as multiple publishers have revealed that they intend on making new game announcements in the coming months. All on their own timetables, detached from the typical cycle of trade and consumer shows like E3, Gamescom, TGS and others. For starters, Square Enix intends on announcing new titles in July and August, according to a report on website Kamatsu. Likewise, Japanese publisher Bandai Namco intends on having a showcase for its anime game products on July 22nd, according to website Push Square, where we'll likely see more of games like Scarlet Nexus, which looks fucking awesome. Push Square also reports that indie darling publisher Devolver Digital is having its own showcase this one on July 11th. So we have those to look forward to some new game announcements. And number 14 is a wrap up website. Polygon reports that Final Fantasy 14's perpetually delayed 5.3 patch has been delayed yet again and now has a release date of August 11th. I think COVID is like wreaking havoc on that team for some reason. The PlayStation blog reports that local multiplayer action game Bacon Switch is coming to PS4 on an unknown date. That action stealth game Budget Cuts is coming to PSVR on September 25th. And that side scroller Never Song is coming to PS4 on July 16th. Website Gamatsu reports that action RPG Hellpoint is coming to PS4 on July 30th. That Switch side-scrolling RPG Dragon Marked for Death is coming to PS4, according to an internal PSN leak. That RPG creation kit RPG Maker MV is coming to PS4 on September 8th. That arcade soccer game Street Power Soccer is coming to PS4 on August 25th. That World War I-centric online shooter Tannenberg is coming to PS4 on July 24th. 
That action RPG anima song from the abyss is coming to PS4 and PS5 at an unknown date in the future. That a new Ben 10 related game called Ben 10 Power Trip is coming to PS4 on October 9th. That RPG Fault Milestone Two Sides Above is coming to PS4 at an unknown point in the future. That action puzzler Pedal Crash is coming to PS4 at some point in August. And that upcoming remastered edition of GameCube game Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, which we already knew was coming to PS4, will have a free-to-play game, a so-called light version of it, that to tantalize new players when it comes to PlayStation 4 on, July, on August 27th, rather. Website Push Square reports that fighting game Party Animals, which looks pretty funny, is coming to PS4 later in 2020. That music-based game No Straight Roads is now coming to PS4 on August 25th, having been slightly delayed. That new Dying Light DLC called Hell Raid is coming on July 23rd. And that recently announced Bloodstained Curse of the Moon 2, which I cannot wait for, has a release date of July 10th. And finally, the recently announced Crisis Remastered, which was due to come out on PS4 on July 23rd, has been indefinitely delayed following leaked footage and a, re a reveal trailer that left many players confused as to its quality. A new release date has yet to be revealed. Have you looked at this uh, footage of Crisis? <laughs> no, I'm, I, f I was going to earlier, but I got to look at it now. I'm curious about it. Yeah, I haven't actually. I'll look at it as well. Let me see here. Let me uh, Crisis. Crisis Remastered. Because I haven't looked at it yet either. Uh, it's supposed to look like ass, though. Let's see. Here's Does it really look that trailer. bad? It looks like Crisis. I guess it doesn't look yeah. great. I yeah, I mean, it looks... It looks fine. I don't know. Really? This is uh This is a game from 2007. I mean, what did it what I'm I'm not even talking into the mic. What am I doing? It's a game from 2007. It doesn't look like it's uh that bad. It's a remaster. It's not a remake. Yeah. I I guess th this doesn't look great, but it doesn't look catastrophic. Yeah, I don't I was I was expecting to see something more horrifying than this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what people are, what people's problems are, but yeah, they did. They definitely delayed it. So who knows when we're going to see that fucking game come out. I like, I like the original crisis actually quite a bit. Chris, this is when we would usually talk about new game releases, but in Sony's schizophrenic nature, there is no drop this week, either a regular one or even a list of games. Uh, so there's nothing for us to even make up, which is unfortunate because silent and cliche wrote into us and said, Hey, see, man, just wanted to pop in and say that I really hope you guys continue to do improv descriptions of games. Even if Sony brings back the real ones, I'd still love to hear your guys riffing on the new names or on the names. Colin, I have to say Chris has a slight edge because of his enthusiastic <laughs> delivery, but you still had me laughing plenty. Almost got into a wreck. I was laughing so hard at one point. Pretty sure it was the dig dug party explosions, but I think we can all agree that it's well worth the risk. <laughs> yeah, Chris is definitely better at this than I am, but I I'm trying my best uh, to put some comedy and some weirdness in there. And uh, yeah, we'll continue to do it. But Sony is not putting up anything this week. And, and by the way, if you go to the PlayStation blog and read the comments on these posts, they fu people fucking hate them. So who the hell knows what they're going to do? I will say Iron Man VR comes out the yeah. day that this comes out on Patreon. So that's the only game I can think of. Yeah, that's it's, uh, it's kind of sad that we, we can't say that's not listed anywhere. Kind of wild. He said he says I almost almost got into a wreck because I was laughing so hard. And it, that, every time I get comments like that, it freaks me out because I always wonder like, who got into a wreck and just fucking perished because and of yeah, a, they didn't. They, yeah, they can't they can't write in because I, I made a joke and killed them. Oh, man, that's funny. Yeah, well, it's not funny. Well, it is funny. I guess that is funny. It trips me out. All right, Chris, let's get into this. One, two, three, four, five, six. We have six questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas to end our show with as tradition dictates. David wrote into us. And by the way, it's spelled D-A-I-V-I-D. David. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I sound, who, who does that sound like? Uh, oh, my God. The, the give me more cowbell guy. Why can't I think of his name? Uh, uh, Walken. Why? Wow, yeah, Christopher Walken. David. 
Hey, CCs. Now that July has come around and Microsoft's first party event is on its way, I wanted to ask, what do you men, manly men, think would it take for most to make most people think that Microsoft's first party games are on par with Sony's? Can Master Chief save them or would it take something unexpected? Keep making that chicken squeal. Chris, you're uh, more of an Xbox person than I am for sure. You're excited about Halo. What is going to happen at this first party event that's in the next few weeks? And can they do anything that will make it seem like they're on par, uh, first party par anyway with Sony? I actually think their goal needs to not be to seem like they're on par. I feel like their goal needs to be distinct. They need to have a showcase that I think speaks to the variety on that platform. And I feel like they have to have a showcase that uh, relies heavily on offering people an experience that isn't necessarily available in other places. Because uh, I can tell you right now, like, I, I don't want I don't want to see anything that looks anything like The Last of Us. Or anything like God of War, you know what I mean? Like I, I've seen it, I, I've played it for like the last several years. I'm, I, I got it. Like I, I get it. Games can do this now. I'm fine. Uh, leave it that to God of War. Leave that to Last of Us. Leave that to wh- whatever the hell. Uh, I want to see, I want to see stuff that just looks fun. I want to see stuff that looks like uh, they're trying, and I want to see stuff that just speaks to the the ip that they have i want i want to see a new fable honestly like that that's what that's beyond just like the halo stuff that i know i've been waiting for for five years now i really am curious to see what they're going to do with fable because fable is such a charming series and i think it has a lot of legs and there really isn't an f there there really isn't an rpg that has that tone that i've played and i would love to see that tone revisited because i think it is unique and i think microsoft has a lot of these unique properties that they just haven't done anything with in like a long time and I want to see that. I want to see something made of, of, of those of those experiences, because I think that's where the strength is. I saw that. Uh, actually, speaking of Fable, I saw that um, it wouldn't be relevant on our show. So I, I didn't obviously report it. But uh, the, Microsoft did renew the, the Fable IP uh, license, or I guess you should say like the trademark recently with the intent to use it. Yeah. Uh, which they, they marked in there. So I think we are going to see Fable because they did cancel that Fable. What was it? Fable Legends? Yeah. Or whatever it was called. Uh, along with. Uh, remember, they, they also phantom dust and all this other it's like all this random ass shit that they canceled but i uh i agree with you i i don't want to see that stuff either from them i I think it would be a mistake because i don't want to sound like a fanboy but i don't think they can i don't think they can compete with sony on those fronts i I don't think they're going to make a game better than god of war like god of war i don't think they're going to make a game like the last of us that's better than the last of us i think they need to focus on the things they can do well and i think finding those different niches. I think they can compete in open world role-playing games. They can certainly compete in first-person shooters. They can certainly compete with third-person shooters, cover-based shooters. They can compete uh, with racing games, with Forza and all this other stuff. So I think they just have to find their own way. They don't want to look like a poor man Sony because that's not going to reflect well on them. Yeah. And yeah. and so I'm I'm really excited for that event. I want to see it. Yeah. And we'll, I think we'll do an episode of Sacred Symbols Plus about it. So yeah, we should. I yeah, I don't want to see Master Chief teaching his son how to bury his mom or something <laughs> like I like I don't need to see that. Oh, uh, you are going to see uh, you are going to see Master Chief partaking in a uh, battle royale, though, I think. So get ready for that. Hey, well, as long as it's a game mode and not the game, I'm fine. I think it is a game mode as far as I understand. David Graham wrote in and said, Italian Stallion Colin and Latino lover Chris, how do you feel about difficulty based trophies? I've been playing The Last of Us from the outset and Survivor difficulty with the game when the game was the game, which the game, I'm sorry, actually recommends against. While I do appreciate the extra intense experience it gives, I can't help but feel a little miffed by the fact that I won't get an explicit reward once I manage to finish the game. Could this just be a choice made so people don't abuse the accessibility options or is Sony first party slowly eliminating the concept? Keep it real. Well, Chris, uh, I, maybe you can send David an explicit reward of your own. 
if he <laughs> for beating the last of us on survivor difficulty yeah how do you feel about, how do you feel about this like you were in the in the chivos at one time and yeah i i like difficulty based trophies but i don't like it when it's on the hardest difficulty so like in uncharted you have like a novice or ever normal hard and crushing I like that there's no trophy. Just in that example, there would be no trophy for crushing, but there would be a trophy for hard. I like that. I don't like locking your trophies behind like these absurd difficulty levels, like with Doom 2016, which was fucking impossible for me yeah. on the hardest difficulty level, or especially Wolfenstein 2, where you had to beat the game on the hardest difficulty level without dying mm-hmm. to get one of the trophies, which is fucking nuts. Yeah, fuck I that. I mean, that's absurd. That's absurd. I remember seeing that and being like, you have to be kidding me that's that's good if you die you die it's over you can't even save (laughs) yeah so doom has that too um so how do you feel do you feel like there should be more explicit rewards for these kinds of things or do you kind of just do it to do it like we used to we used to play games on hard or get all the s ranks or unlock everything to just do it yeah Uh, it's almost it's almost hard to believe that that was the case at one time but that is true what do do you think yeah i feel like i just do it to do it like um i i I think here's what I i i think that there should be achievements for all of the standard difficulties i feel like even the hardest difficulty should have an achievement attached to it but if you have like specialty difficulties like uh like the one life mode in doom or uh wolfenstein i feel like that is so extraneous and so hardcore that i don't i don't necessarily think it needs any more satisfaction other than having done it because i feel like that is that is enough because because beating a game on hard on hard difficulty like you know, it's 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 fine, but it's nice to have that little trophy attached to it because it makes it a little bit more worthwhile. Doing beating Doom Eternal in one life, like I don't even know how you do that. You know, the fact that you've done that at all is like worth fifty thousand achievements, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So, like, good job, congratulations. But I I, I like the idea of just having an achievement for all of the, or or a trophy for all of the um all of the primary difficulty settings, even even some of the harder ones, but those specialty ones, man, can like there's a mythic difficulty in halo that like it's just it's legend you don't get an achievement right it's just legendary but you activate all of these difficulty modifiers that like it gets rid of your hud uh you can't see how much ammo you have it's it's just insane and it's like there's no achievement for that because like doing it in the first place should be its own thing yeah i i agree with you i think i just when i go into some of these experiences and i'm like this is fucking ridiculous I remember watching the um, I don't watch people play games almost ever. And I actually went and looked up the Wolfenstein Two. someone doing the Wolfenstein Two like one life hardest difficulty run through. I'm like, how is this even possible? I don't even know how this is possible. There are more like I would. Chris, if I got like eight or ten hours into that and I died, I would fucking kill myself. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I like, imagine because you can't save like you. There's nothing. There's no way to to spoof it like in Bioshock and Bioshock Two. And Bioshock Infinite, when you don't use Vita Chambers or whatever, you can still save the game manually. Like, you can circumvent it. It's not as hard as it seems. But there's, like, no clever way to get around this. And that puts me... As someone who likes Platinum Trophies, that puts me off. Where I'm like, what What were you guys thinking with this? No, one, no one's going to get this trophy. I, I can't even imagine how many people actually have it. I think that's probably... I don't know. I, I wouldn't make a game that way. But at the same time, I do understand, like, if that trophy has, like, a 0.1% rarity, that's, that's kind of cool. That is kind of, I understand the bragging rights of that being like, yeah, I have this insane, I beat Doom Eternal in one life and I can prove, and I can prove it to you. Like, I, I get it, but like, I feel like it does ruin the experience for most people when you have something like that, that just seems so completely unapproachable. Uh, and it's why I think there should be like, um, I don't know, like maybe like a, 
like an emblem or something that you unlock or like some cosmetic thing that you unlock. I, I feel like that is totally worth it. Like uh, if you get if you beat Doom Eternal in, in one life on that hardest difficulty, I think, yeah, I think you should get like some in-game reward for it. Like maybe like a cosmetic or like a banner or like something or like maybe your name in gold or, or like so- something to to give you something for that achievement but not but something that doesn't detract from your overall percentage of of uh achievements or trophies completed yeah i'm looking actually at wolfenstein the new Colossus's entry on psn profiles it has a 0.1 percent rarity so it's as rare as it can be and 631 out of 80,000 people on psn profiles that put this in got it so that's actually higher than i thought but it's fucking nuts. I mean, I'm, I'm act. There's actually a huge thread. It's the Mein or Mein run, as they call it. And yeah, it takes like there. It's just there's like a huge thread, and it's just it's full of heartbreak. You know, it's uh, hard. To, I don't even want to read this. It's fucking miserable. All right, let's keep going here. Adam Bagford wrote in. I like that last name because it reminds me of like you know in a movie when someone's trying to quickly make up a name, and it's like they, and then the camera pans over, and it's like a woman holding a grocery bag getting into a Taurus. <laughs> that's that, that's how I feel. I was like, yeah, bag, bag Ford. Yeah, uh, he says, hello, random C word, Colin and random C word, Chris. Now that The Last of Us Part Two is out, how long do you think it'll be till we see the factions multiplayer? I absolutely love the multiplayer from the first game and really like the additions to the gameplay from part two. Love the show. I was thinking about that, too, Adam, because the new gameplay features and the way the game feels is so good, in my opinion, that it would really shine in factions. Chris, when do you think we'll see factions uh, as a standalone? My My theory here is that they're going to re-release The Last of Us Part Two natively on PlayStation 5. Like, they're going to do it. It's not going to just be a backwards compatible thing. Mm-hmm. And they're going to include factions in it. And I think that that's what they're going to do. <sighs> yeah, maybe. I, I really hate that. But, like, yeah, you're probably right. I, I think that might be the... the probably... I, I, I don't know. Like, would that, would that be smarter than just, like, making it a PS5, like, kind of, like, a draw to PS5 and having The Last of Us be backwards compatible? Yeah, maybe. Like, it would be... I just feel like they're not going to not release this game on PS5 in some way, you know, a double dip, even though the backwards compatibility kind of makes it mood. I still think they're going to try to do it. And so you got to give people a reason to get in. But I I think the bigger shame is to lock factions on PS5. Like, what about all the PS4 players that want to play it, too? That would that would kind of be a shame for them. But we don't even know what it is yet. We have no idea when it's coming. I mean, they just mentioned it in passing like once. Yeah. So we don't we don't have any idea what the hell is going on with this game. But. I don't know. Like, I, I mean, my ideal would be something like a 1999 PS4 slash PS5 crossplay cross progression game. Mm-hmm. That's just the online functionality with some maps and whatnot. But I feel like they're going to do something shady. Not, not Naughty Dog, but Sony is going to do something shady with this one. But I, I so maybe next year. Yeah, I, I can know. see that. Yeah, I, I don't imagine you're seeing it this year for sure. No, I don't think so either. It would have been pretty cool to have it as a launch game on PS5, but that's not going to happen. Hazen Brian Master wrote in and said, hey, fellas, I've been playing Star Wars Episode One Racer this week, and it got me thinking about how much I miss arcade racers. Yes, we have kart racers and the GT style sim racers, but is there really no market these days for Jet Moto or Cruising USA? Games like these could be a blast and visually stunning on modern consoles. Easy to pick up and have fun. Thoughts all the best to you from Cincinnati. So Episode One Racer is supposed to be I haven't played that game in forever, but it's supposed to be pretty fun, if not a little bit ugly. I've been thinking about maybe picking it up, although I don't really know if I can take it. <laughs> but yeah, man, I used to love Jet Moto on PS1 a lot. And uh, Cruising USA was always a, a fun game to play in arcade. Do you feel like there's a missing gap here in racing games, Chris, in, in terms of the arcade racer? 
Yeah, I kind of miss them. Like the 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 ones that I always uh, loved. I had this one on Dreamcast called Hydro Thunder, and I loved, I loved Hydro Thunder because it was just like a it was like jet skis and like boats and stuff, and it was like just it was just an arcade racer like very very similar to uh, Star Wars and and all these other games. It's a fun little genre. I I I don't necessarily think that there are many people clamoring for that style of game, but. I know that if if at any point one comes out, I'm probably going to be curious about it. Like I, I've already looked into episode one, uh, racer, but I, I I'll be real. I haven't really. I'm not really a Star Wars guy, so I just I I didn't grow up with that game really at all. I played it at the arcades, but you know, I, I, at an arcade, it's such a different feeling because you're in the thing and you're like there's a tactile kind of almost almost a uh, steel battalion type feel to to being in a, in a in an arcade versus just you know doing the same thing with a controller. It's the same way that I would argue, like, when I first played Pac-Man on, like, a controller, I was like, this game sucks. Like, Pac-Man sucks. But then you play, <laughs> you play Pac-Man on, like, a joystick, on, on, like, an arcade machine, and it's, like, it's so much better. Like, it's incredible. Yeah. How, it's insane how much just the input method can impact your overall enjoyment of a game, because on, on a D-pad, it's so joyless. Yeah, I, I, it's funny, man, because I feel like... Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man especially, is like one of the great games of all time. Oh, it's, it's way better you've than got Pac-Man. To, but you've got to play it. You've got to play it in a very specific way or it's not going to work. Yeah. Like on the old, that old just machine with one button, one joystick. Yeah. Perfect. Because it's all, about, like, it's all about just like shifting your weight onto it and like you're doing all these like maneuvers and it just feels awesome. <laughs> it's so engaging. Yeah, it's I want to get a, a Miss Pac-Man machine. I want to get a few arcade machines, but I, you know, I live in Virginia. It's hot as fucking hell here. And I'm afraid of I'm afraid of putting my stuff. I sounded so angry when I said that. And I, I'm, af- I'm afraid of putting the machines in the garage. And then are they going to like work? I don't know. I have no idea. I was watching um, Ozark season three and, and it's not a spoiler, but at some point the main character gets like an arcade machine put in his in his garage. Really, it is meaningless to the story ultimately. But and I was thinking about that there. I was like, is that is that safe, Marty? Are you all right putting that there? But Marty Bird wanted that arcade machine. And so there it was. All right, let's get through these other couple ones here. Eddie Van Hozier wrote in and said, hey, mozzarella Moriarty and is it Cotija? Cotija? Uh, Cotija. I don't know. Cotija. Are you are you or are you not Hispanic? I've definitely never heard Cotija before. It's a cheese. It's like the cheese that they put on like the uh, it's like a disgust. I really hate it, actually, but it's a cheese. You know, the corn on the cob. The yeah. thing that you can get at like a Mexican restaurant, they put the cheese on it. That that's that, I think. Oh, it's Mexican. That that explains it. Yeah, you're not Mexican, so why would you know that? Um, all right. <laughs> Two episodes ago, when talking about Rocket Arena, Colin said this game is going to fail. In quotes. I've heard you use this proclamation in the past, most of the time correctly, but with a few notable exceptions like the Crash Insane trilogy. Okay, Eddie. Do you ever feel like you're with your reach and influence <laughs> that saying something like that can be a self fulfilling prophecy? I realize that there are a lot of factors involved, and your voice isn't the end all be all. But couldn't this dissuade people from even trying it? This isn't a criticism at all. Just something I was curious about. Thanks for all the hard work. And I love the content. Keep it up. Yeah, I do think about that sometimes. I mean, I don't I can't, I'm not going to make or break a game. Yeah. When I was at when I was at IGN and I had like a huge captive audience, there were definitely examples of games that I helped make bigger, way bigger than they were. The, the examples are and, and by the way, the publishers of these games will tell you that, too. The, the two examples that come to mind for me immediately are is Nino Cooney and uh, Catherine which were two games that I wrote about endlessly. I gushed about endlessly and definitely had an effect on those games because I worked at IGN. It wasn't because of me. It was because it was on IGN. Yeah. And so I don't, we don't have that kind of audience here. And 
I do try to use our um, our responsible. I try to responsibly use our platform. I don't want to just sh- you know shoo shoo games away and be like, man, this game has no chance. But my job is also to be an analyst. And sometimes I'm going to be wrong, but a lot of times, like you said, I am right. I'm totally right. I was right about the $70 games, wasn't I, guys? I've been saying that since episode one of this show. And so I feel like I have a pretty good place in which to say these things. And like you said, with the crash, for instance, I was totally I was catastrophically wrong about crash. It wasn't even like a little bit wrong. I was totally wrong. I mean, crash is like living again. Yeah. So um, with Rocket Arena, I saw that game and I was like, this game really doesn't have a prayer of succeeding. That was the game that looks like every other game. Yeah. That we were talking about earlier. Right. And uh, how do you feel about this, Chris? How do you feel about using our platform like this? Because I don't want to put my I don't want to put my fingers on the scale in any way. I just want to inform the audience as best as I can. That's my job. So I'm going to continue yeah. to do that unabashedly. So what do you think? Our, our job is also to be honest and not to um, say things that we don't believe just to placate people's feelings or, or necessarily because I, I, making games is hard shit. Like I know that like they spent months, probably years on on, on that game. But if 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 we don't feel if if we feel like it's genuinely a mess and we don't say that, well, then then we're then I would argue we're not using our platform responsibly because our that's that's part of this is just being honest. And and honesty can be uncomfortable and honesty can be, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit hostile sometimes. But I would rather be in a situation where I feel comfortable being able to be like, hey, you know what? This this doesn't look good. This looks like a mess. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I feel pretty confident in saying that this is probably not going to do well. And, you know, if we're wrong, then that's that's honestly great because that means somebody else has found success. And that's that's sick. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. I want every game to succeed. And uh, yeah, just looking at Rocket Arena, I was like, <laughs> why, why would you play this when you can play all these other games? That's going to continue to be my question about all of these similar games until otherwise noted. That's going to be I mean, if Ubisoft is making a game where I'm like, I don't think so, then certainly these smaller games are not, not going to stand up much of a prayer with me. But sometimes candor is unfair. It's worth noting that. And uh, so are we being fair to Rocket Arena? Maybe not. But like Chris said, it is our job to be candid nonetheless. And you guys can always hold us account. You never forget anything we say anyway. <laughs> yeah, you guys are pulling shit out that I've said. I'm always surprised. Like people pull out shit. I was like, Colin, on Podcast Beyond episode 177 in 2009. You clearly said, you know, like, I don't know, dude, I don't I, I probably walked out of that podcast room and had no fucking idea what I said. I never thought about it again. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel about every time that we're done. It's like what? Like, I'll I'll walk into my living room and my roommates will be like, oh, what'd you talk about on the podcast? And I, don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, we just go into like a trance, like an Edgar Casey style trance during the show. Yeah. You know. All right. Let's go to Mark Mills, who wrote in and he has the last question. He says, hello, guys. As we already know, an all-digital future is inevitable as far as game distribution is concerned. The somewhat surprising disc-free PS5 announcement a while ago got me thinking. That was surprising, wasn't it? When will we see the first digital-only AAA game release? And what publisher will pull the trigger? Is this generation too bit, Is it too risky to make such a move? Or with the poor state of a lot of the world's internet infrastructure, is it still too risky? My belief is that it'd most likely be a first-party studio. And EA or Bethesda would never make such a move first. I see it being a Microsoft studio as they've always been a bit ahead of the curve in the software and network realms. Maybe one of their newly acquired studios like Ninja Theory or Obsidian. This is a good question, Mark. Yeah. Uh, thanks for submitting it. I don't. I, the answer is I don't know. And I don't think it's going to happen this generation. As long as there is an ability to put a disc into a machine, it would be foolish to not make it an option. And in the AAA space, when, again, we're we're talking about a hundred million dollar plus investment, 
you got to sell it to as many people as possible. So I, I think that that's not going to happen this gen- coming generation. Yeah. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, that's that's not going to happen. I, I, I would say that the next tw- the next 10 I would say the next 10 to 15 years, you're, you're going to safely be able to acquire physical physical copies of games. Uh, there's a large portion of the United States that cannot get reliable Internet that does not that is uh, swamped by data caps uh, that is not prepared for the infrastructural boon that it would be necessary to make this a unanimous reality. Uh, and not to mention all the other countries out there that it aren't even necessarily as caught up as we are. And our situation isn't great. <laughs> who also kind of rely heavily on discs. And that stuff is not going to change overnight. It's certainly not going to change in five years. It's certainly not going to change in 10 years. I think we've got a while before this becomes a ubiquitous thing. So by the time this even becomes a question in the minds of the people questioning whether or not they're going to take that first step, the studios in play are probably going to be completely different than they are today. And um, I I think if you're a physical collector, if you're somebody who's looking to collect physical games and still stick with physical media, you're going to have a long, long uh, road ahead of you before you're going to have to make that decision for good. And I I think you don't need to really worry about it, honestly. I I think you're good for for a long time. Yeah, well said. I, I couldn't say it any better. So I won't. Very well said indeed. All right, Chris, that's all we have for this episode of Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Appreciate you. Of course. Uh, thank you all out there for your love, your kindness, and your support of our show. Remember, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand to subscribe. Get access to Sacred Symbols Plus, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show. Early ad-free access to every episode of this show and other fun perks as well. We'll see you next time for more Sacred Symbols Plus and, of course, Sacred Symbols. Until then, thank you for your time. Goodbye. Take care, guys. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Richmond, Virginia and Burbank, California, USA. This show is conceived by, is written by, and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Chris Raygun. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Chris is on Twitter at Chris R. Gunn and on Instagram at Chris underscore Ray underscore Gunn. Sacred Symbols is edited by Dustin Furman. To message the show online, please use Patreon's DM service. As you know, all of Collins Last Stand shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Alan Abraham, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Zach Bonham, Barrett Boswell, Cody Bradbury, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Bjorn Campbell, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Philip Crone, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Jordan Detto, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Chris Galvin, Darren Gardner, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Jay Getter, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Richard Hebert III, Kyle Hagel, Robbie Hensley, Blake Israel, Azan Isa El Raisi, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Juliffs, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Bo Clant, Kevin Komaki, Mason Cadillac, Greg Lada, Don Q. Lee, Ray Leja, Patrick Leslie, Avery Lewandowski, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Kevin R. Lord, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, 
Daniel Maraca, Ross Maranka, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Chris Moore, Andrew Morgan, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, George Newton, Daryl E. Naiman, Stephen Nieder, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George A. Nunez, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, James Pappas, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Jeff Pollard, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan R., Isaac E. Renteria, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Petra Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Gregory Slavinsky, Joshua Smallwood, Christian Stewart, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Constantino D. Valencia, Michael Vecchio, Justin Wagaman, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Galja, Casual Misfits Gaming, Homeworld Hub, Current Gen Podcast, Sticks and Crits, Eskimona Fono, Stellar Brooks, Throw 7, McDog 18, Infinite, Boots, Organic Produce, TB Lightning, Mad Mock Media, Bloody Fang, Mubarak, Vexius, Richter 86, Hugo's Desk, Of Fortuna, Gamer Filmaholic, and Megadet. David. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.